Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. You can also follow us on Facebook. You can subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, elsewhere, and at nationalreview.com. Listen, leave reviews where possible, help others find the program. And if you're in uh, it's, it's, you know, the, the holiday spirit, I can say that, we're close enough. The holiday spirit in which to support our efforts here at Political Beats, ho, ho, ho. we direct you to patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Support us there, help the show stay ad-free as it is now. There is entry-level support for voting and just saying, hey, nice job, fellas. Mid-level for early access to shows and at a higher audio quality. And then our upper-level best friends who get early access, higher audio quality, monthly exclusive content shows, remastered episodes, playlists, and more. You can join us at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I am full of energy. I'm holding this Red Bull here in my hand like a microphone. I'm all sweating, and I got to, got to, got to, got to give it up for this episode. Uh, more on that in just a few moments. But Jeff is raring to go. He's on Twitter at EsotericCD. And our guest on today's program is a repeat offender. He is the current state representative for the 58th District in Michigan. He is a real honest-to-goodness politician. Uh, he is currently a candidate for re-election in the 35th District of Michigan. And as I, I told him previously, I remember this because he's gone from Bears great outside linebacker Wilbur Marshall, number 58, to all-time perhaps greatest right-handed hitter in baseball history, Frank Thomas, number 35. 58 to 35, that's how I remember it. Uh, State Representative Andrew Fink is with us here in studio. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Jeff. Tell us a little about yourself, Andrew, as we begin the program, um, how you got to be a state representative, besides the hard work involved, and uh, how you sort of entered this world of politics. Yeah, well, I, I do represent the area that we're sitting in now, of course, uh, Scott, here, Hillsdale County and Branch County are my current district, and that's most of the of the district that I'm expecting to represent uh, beginning next year, plus the addition of a, a small portion of Lenaway County. And uh, I came out here to go to college in 2003 and met my wife here. And this is kind of where we decided to settle down and raise our family once we had the ability to uh, make that choice uh, economically. And uh, once I did that, I'd always been involved in politics. And I kind of decided that although it would be more convenient personally to wait until my kids were older, um, <laughs> given the, the what I perceive to be kind of heightened stakes of politics right now, I didn't feel comfortable waiting and decided to get involved uh, kind of on the theory that if I didn't and things didn't improve, uh, I would have at least partially only myself to blame. That's uh, maybe a little foreshadowing of one of my favorite Otis Redding songs here, Nobody's Fall of Mine. But uh, that's uh, that's kind of how I got involved in, in or decided to become a candidate myself, having already been involved in, you know, as a precinct delegate and having had a couple of political jobs. But for the most part, I've been practicing law uh, first in the Marine Corps and then in private practice. Andrew. Now, here I was hoping that you would actually just attribute it all to your personal genius. I mean, I'm, you're no, too humble. No. Now, one thing you can tell about a person who's decided to run for state representative or any other office higher than that is that they're probably not a genius. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
So I always say that about my brothers and I. My, you know, I, how smart am I compared to them? I went into journalism and radio. They're engineers and work for the U.S. government, and they're the smart ones. I don't know how what happened. Uh, Andrew is back with us today to talk about, as you know, if you click down the episode, the great Otis Redding, an episode that both Jeff and I have been looking forward to. Jeff had been tweeting about Otis a few months ago, and we had an opportunity to sort of match us all together to get through a wonderful episode on the great Otis Redding. Turn the floor back over to Andrew to tell us uh, how you found out about Otis Redding, uh, why you love the music, and why other people should care about Otis. When I was a little boy, I fell asleep listening to the oldie station every night until I uh, started listening to Tigers and Red Wings games every night uh, in their given season. So I obviously heard Dock of the Bay then you know it's a song that uh, you i think scott you you claim to have a memory of the first well, time you heard it or yeah we'll we'll get to that later <laughs> yeah but i don't really believe you i mean that's it, a pretty ubiquitous song so um so you know so i had that amount of knowledge and otis redding is a famous enough artist that i was kind of getting into music surely i i you know had some concept of who otis redding was uh but i i i i have to admit i don't remember with 100% certainty i think this might be a repeat story but i think i picked up a booker t and the mg's album at the library which is how i discussed kind of getting into the the almond brothers on our, on the last episode i did with you guys uh, and i uh, there i'm sure that i knew the song green onions and so i kind of wanted to get it and i picked up the this greatest hits or something you know at best of or of some kind and that was so great uh, and I, I kind of got so into Booker T and MGs and Steve Cropper, the guitar player in particular, that I started seeking out uh, other you know material that they had played on, which is in the era that they were performing a lot as Booker T and the MGs or recording lots of Booker T and the MGs. I was all at Stacks, and so I started listening to all this different Stacks music, and I I got collections of Stacks. Uh, you know, there's there are uh, multi artist Stacks collections you can get out there. Uh, but very quickly, I, I realized that the 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 most attractive uh, music and personality there was Otis. So I became an Otis Redding fan and uh, bought most of these records on CD back then and uh, and became kind of a uh, devotee uh, of him as a singer, uh, never attempting to like, you know, it, none of the people who saw me play in, in college uh, in, in the bands I was in thought I was trying to sound like Otis, but I certainly, <laughs> I, I thought of him as the, uh, as like the, the kind of the greatest uh, uh American pop singer in, in terms of just kind of wanting to kind of, you know, wanting that guy to, to sing to you in a, in a way, like wanting that guy to be the voice in the music that you listen to. Yeah. You know, and, and we're going to get into this, but it's pretty obvious just from listening to him. It's a, uh, it's his personality is different from a lot of other people. And you can hear it. If you listen to a few of his tracks, you just start to pick up on that. It's not, it's not hard to understand. Sad, sad song, y'all. 
so having done that, I you know I became kind of an evangelist for him. And when I was in uh, bowling class here at Hillsdale with uh, my friend Chris and uh, at the time my friend Lauren, uh, we all used uh, sort of pseudonyms. And when we would put our names in the you know the little TV screen mm-hmm. that's above the bowling alley, whatever that's called, the scoreboard, and uh, uh, Chris called himself Rocco. I don't remember why. And we called Lauren Eureka, and they called me Otis. And uh, I lent Lauren at the time a copy of Otis Blue that I don't remember ever getting back <laughs> during college. And then, you know, we went our separate ways. She moved back to Texas. I don't think I did get it back until uh, we got married. And so I, I, it came back to my position. It's a long way to go then. to get an album back. Yeah. I got to tell well, you. Yeah. And at, was, at least it all came back around yeah, in the end. It did. Yeah. And it was, you know, that's some of the, you know, it was, it was good, good. Um, Great memories. You know, yeah. Sharing, sharing Otis with her was, was surely part of our story. But. Anyway, that's uh, that's kind of what it's like, you know. You get into you get into listening to this guy, and you really don't want to stop. Scott, do you want to go a second? Yeah, I'll go because um, I was telling Andrew before we started. But among the three of us today, I think I'm I'm the one with the least amount of knowledge, and that's not to say I have no knowledge at all. But you guys are just so uh, such devotees of Otis that I, I uh, I'm probably the, the, the third most knowledgeable person here today. Uh, Otis Redding, for me probably one of my first memories as it is with a lot of these soul acts and 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 especially stacks volt acts is the blues brothers and the song that the blues brothers would come out to at all their concerts i can't turn loose song came from because part of the magic of the blues brothers and we'll probably hopefully do a show on this one day is 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 digging deep and discovering where their influences not where they influence the songs they're covering and who did them the first time and so there are songs like i can't turn you loose that that were not on the blues brothers soundtrack uh soothe me from sam and dave is another one as they're going to bob's country bunker and that's not on the blues brothers soundtrack and so you gotta you know wait for the movie to be over and you got to check the the credits and find out who you know who who sang the song. And so I did this, um, I, uh, and and figured out that Otis Redding was the guy behind "I Can't Turn You Loose." And this is, you know, when I was first getting into a lot of those Stax acts and 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 Motown acts. And I, I do have to tell you that for a while, I don't think that I broke Otis Redding out from sort of the group. You know, from from sort of just lumping him in as a, as a Stax artist, and of course, the more you listen and the more you learn and the more you hear, he's such a unique artist. He's such a you can't replicate what Otis Redding brought to the studio. 
I can't replicate what Otis Redding brought to the stage. And the fact that his life was cut short, I mean, it's just an immense, immense tragedy at the age he died in, in that plane crash, uh, considering the work he had done, considering the direction of, of the work that he had left behind. I mean, we were, we were denied years and years of just amazing music. And I know, you know we've done Marvin Gaye, and we've talked a little Motown. We haven't talked more specifically, I think, on a lot of these shows about Stax and Volt, and we'll, we'll do a little bit of that today. And it's so hard for me to choose, right, if you say, <laughs> listen to a bunch of Motown songs, listen to a bunch of Stax Volt, because, I mean, just think of the, the bands, right, the, the bands that, that were the engine of these songs. How do you pick one over the other? It's, they're both incredible. They both have these incredible performers. Um, but I will say, in the end, when I do choose, I almost always choose a Stax Volt mix over a Motown mix. And that's not to say I hate Motown or you have to pick songs. a side, Scott. I got to no, pick a side. You don't have to pick a side. It's okay. When I when I do, you know, when I ask Google to play me a mix when we're having a party at the house or something. I'm just asking it to play some Stax Volt music, and probably the premier. Uh, the greatest of them all is Otis Redding. And and I mentioned this before we started, and I'll just drop it here and we can come back to it, is in a way Otis has been uh, forgotten, not the right word, and maybe overlooks not the right word, but if you go online and, and look up, you know, these great artists of all time, you'll see dozens and hundreds of, you know, these are his 10 best songs, these are the albums you have to own, or why he was a genius, or this and that. And, you know, in prepping and just trying to read more about the artist, I, I didn't see a lot of that. I, there's not a lot of sort of retrospectives on how great Otis Redding was uh, and how amazing his music is and how he and that band, the MGs, just made this, this undeniable engine. And so... Out of all proportion to the quality of his work, too. Yeah. I mean, this, this stuff should be covered so thoroughly. And it's not. Well, I say it's so early in the morning Ooh, it's a quarter till And so that's a little bit about what we'll do today as well, I hope, because um, much like Otis introducing himself to, to, the, to the crowd in Monterey, who many of whom had never seen or heard him before, um, and, and blew them away and, and turned, them, turned them into fans in 26 minutes or however long that set was. It was not a long set. Maybe we can do something similar with our time here today with Otis Redding. Well, that was beautiful, Scott. And I have to say, I glide above all. You know, I don't have, feel the need to choose between Motown or Stax and Bolt, right? It's, you know, different horses for different courses. It's about the mood I'm in. If I want something classy, I want something with a nice, well-played flute. You know, you're not going to find that in <laughs> Stax and Bolt, right? I don't think you'll ever hear a flute on a Stax song, although I'm sure there's some out there. Um, 
But uh, I think it's actually more interesting that when I was younger, I didn't glide at all about this because the truth of the matter is for me, what did soul music mean to the young Jeff? And the answer is nothing. It didn't actually really have a, a role in my life. You know, like I listened to some Motown on the radio, my mom's oldies, things like that. But it wasn't until a significantly later part of my life that I started getting into this kind of music. Back then, I was like this British Beatle maniac. And so I was listening to The Who and then getting into prog rock, basically going in the opposite direction, going towards more European sounds. And then, I don't know what happened, I took like a weird off-ramp. Maybe I got into Fleetwood Mac, and that was where it all went wrong. And then I started getting into the blues. And then this is like a joke we told on the Patreon episode a couple of months back where I said, look, one day I woke up and I found out I was an enormous blues fan, and I had no <laughs> idea how it happened. Well, I found out I was an enormous soul fan, and I had no idea how it happened. And so the first thing I did is, you know, like, with, what does Jeff always do when he wants to dive into something? And I went and got a stupid box set. I got that Otis box set, the one with the exclamation point. It's a four CD set. I wish I could say it was my dad's beat up copy of Otis Blue that got me into writing. No, I just I, I went for straight for the compilation. I am going at the end of this show tell you to do the same. Okay, I have no regrets. It introduced me into a world of sound that I had really never experienced before. difference i talked about motown being the classy strings and all of that well stacks bolt is sweat it's heat it's grit it's got it, it pounds it's got soul and swagger it's smoky you know 3 a.m in a bar you know some guy bawling his heart out or maybe crying into his beer or something like that it's kind of like you know blunt human emotion it's not like nice and classy in like tuxedos and you know presentable to the president at the white house the way the supremes are stack's fault was more wild than that <laughs> for the show like where do we insert this discussion of stacks well why don't we just start here explain to people like what this 
organization was. And then we explain, you know, who Redding was and who, what he meant to it. You know, there was these different, I mean, I'll just set it up and I'm, you know, let Andrew take it. But like, you know, just to understand there's like many different kind of competing poles, just like in, there was New York as a center of rock music, Los Angeles, or, you know, London. Well, of course, there's so, so many for R&B and soul music in the 60s and 70s as well. Uh, you know, obviously Detroit with Motown being the most important of all, the central one, kind of the sound that the motor city that drove america which is kind of why it remains central in our cultural understanding but they were in the south especially the south was a much more regional market in many ways there are many different little small labels and there are many different regional hegemonies if you will and one of the major cultural capitals particularly for not blues music necessarily but soul and r&b was memphis tennessee Memphis, Tennessee, of course, the home of Elvis as well, and a city with a very complex musical and racial and historical background that couldn't even hope to cover on this show. So it's, it's Stuart it and was, his sister Estelle, Estelle Axton, yeah, and that's where the stacks comes from. It's the first two letters of Stuart, the first two letters of Axton, stacks. Well, then why don't you why don't you set it up for us and tell us what do you how would you describe the stacks volt sound in your mind? You got you and Scott can tell each other because you guys both love this as much as i do uh, i was trying to remember um whether whether so stewart had founded a, a group called satellite records in like the late 50s so at the same time as this elvis and johnny cash by the way and all the you know all these other people on sun records are recording in memphis what i could not remember um although i feel like i probably used to know or or could you could at least learn this easily was whether he intended to found it as a blues or r&b at the, you know, at this time, uh, those genres were not really separate in the in the late '50s or early '60s. But I could not remember whether he intentionally found it that way, or if he was just if he just wanted to make a record label and then this is what happened to it. Uh, but so he found Satellite Records, and then in the early '60s, I think his sister joins him as a partner in like '61, maybe. Uh, and they they're recording blues artists, including Johnny Jenkins, um, and. Uh, I don't think that uh, really it was about the same time that Otis got there. So the, like say the, so Booker T and the MGs is the house band there. And for anyone who doesn't know what, who Booker T and the MGs are, if you've seen the Sandlot, uh, if you're my age and you've seen the Sandlot 200 times, uh, <laughs> when the, the rich boys from across town and the kids from the Sandlot are having their baseball game and there's this big face off, the music playing in the background there is green onions, which is, uh, I one know. of the most famous radio beds as well because it's right. like the yeah. perfect instrumental to put on in the background and while you're reading the weather so if you don't think you've heard it people believe me you've heard it <laughs> one of the five biggest uh pop instrumentals in the second half of the 20th century i mean like I, yeah. other than edgar winner's frankenstein i don't even know what else to put in the list but i could i couldn't think so i mean that's if you really want to say even more than otis Redding, the one single track that probably is synonymous with the original stack sound because this isn't a horn one by the way. there's different right. kind of stacks this okay. is yeah this is probably their single most famous song. there's that well, then, the, yeah 
And that's right. And then so that's and who 62. are the members of that band though? Because it isn't just Booker T. Booker T actually doesn't always play on all of Otis's sessions. He has another very talented man playing for him on his sessions and we'll talk about him as well. Yeah. But who are those other guys? So the original line of the Booker T and MGs came out of the Marquees and Steve Cropper, the guitar player, is prob- probably the, the most prominent musician other than Booker T. Uh, to be to be noted there, the original lineup included a bass up a bassist named Louis Steinberg, who left after a couple of years, uh, and, and, and was Duck replaced Dunn. by Duck Dunn. And so it's Cropper and Duck Dunn are also known by all as members of the Blues Brothers. So you guys talked about the Blues Brothers, you know, calling back to this music, but they literally had members of the Stax House Band in the Blues Brothers. And then the drummer was a man named Al Jackson, uh, who also went on to play on almost all of, uh, or maybe all, I think you could say, all of Al Green's greatest records yeah, as well. Yeah, on high records, which is kind of like sort of an air to when Stax collapsed. That's later. right, that's right. Kind of the smoother uh, 70s version of Memphis Soul there. And, uh, and Al Jackson is the continuity between these two things, and, and the Memphis Horns. Um, so the house band is that band, mostly, you know, during most of the heart of it, Duck Dunn is the bassist, Al Jackson playing drums. Booker T playing the organ and sometimes piano, Steve Cropper playing guitar and often producing and songwriting. All these guys did some songwriting. Cropper did a lot. And the Memphis Horns, Andrew Love and Wayne Jackson being the two guys that are, you know, those are the two guys that are always in the Memphis Horns as other pieces move in and out. Uh, And Isaac Hayes is who I think you were getting at a second ago. Yeah. So chef from South Park for (laughs) anybody who doesn't know who that is. So Isaac Hayes, who later becomes a, you know, very significant star himself. Uh, as a as a singer and and performer, spent a ton of hours in the studio in Memphis at Stax playing great piano pe- pieces and writing and producing. So really, not just an unbelievable battery talent of talent. Just, I mean, it's yeah. like all time greats all playing together. And I think that thing I want to get across most, and you'll hear it, believe me, you'll hear it in our clips, is how different this sound is. I mentioned it already from Motown. It doesn't have that. Motown is very smooth, and it can be very emotional and very stirring. I mean, some of the best of the Temptations, the Four Tops, Four Tops like Bernadette's, like one of the most paranoid songs ever recorded, in my opinion. There's nothing that's buttoned down about that thing. But it's a much different kind of a sound. It almost feels like the Beatles. It's like Pepper-esque compared to the very basic sound you get from Stax, which is sounds like a guitarist, a bassist, a keyboardist, and four or your three horns in a room. It's a tough, sweaty, real, live sound that you could hear played live on stage or in a bar room or something like that. It is not a produced sound. Yeah. And that's why some people love it so much more, because it feels so much more alive and spontaneous. <laughs> This it's just uh, a weird coincidence. We just did Weezer, and I, I think this will be the only comparison between Weezer and uh, and Otis Redding. <laughs> Thank God. But 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 what uh, I, I talked uh, the last episode about how much I love Pinkerton, and so much of that is because of the the sound of Pinkerton. It is raw and loud, and you feel like you're in the room, and that is the sound of Stax. You hear those, those you know when Jackson is 
pounding the snare drum. You feel it. You hear it. You're in the room. Those horns are next horns to your feels, head. Never, I feel like the Rolling Stones spent their entire life like working up to the moment on Exile and Main Street where they got the horns to sound <laughs> like that because that's the stack sound they've been going for and that yet yeah, it nailed until that moment. Yeah, it's it's the most delicious sound in the world to my mind. just a little detail on this so if you compare it you already mentioned like strings and flutes i the the characteristic tambourine of motown the two guitars one playing uh you know sort of rhythm or melody almost uh counter melody lines and one doing the kind of uh what are often called chanks the kind of you know ringing stuff you don't get all of that real characteristic stuff uh pop you know stuff on Stax albums most of them have very similar instrumentation uh most of them have the horns, but um, I don't think until maybe after Otis's death. I, I mean, I, I would be surprised if you can find a string instrument other than a guitar or a bass. On I, a, I, made, I made a note. I made a note. There's one song in his entire discography, I think, that has strings on it and they're almost barely noticeable. So, uh, yeah, yeah you, you, would, you can think of it. And, yeah, it was. I think it might have been on his first posthumous album. So you're right. Yeah. Um, but it was like one of his most his last singles. But you know, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, sorry for interrupting. No, I just and and so then, what is the character like? What is this Southern soul sound that's different? You and and other artists. I mean, there there are people who were not even on stacks that would go and record there. I I think I'm right that Aretha never did, but uh, Wilson Pickett rec- would go and record there. He's he's working for Atlantic. He'd go and record with these guys and get that sound. So and even and Cropper co-wrote uh, in the Midnight Hour. Yeah. So you, you kind of get people going and seeking out this this sweaty, funkier um, uh, sound that that wasn't really being done yet in other places. And and it's and you know so Otis dies in '67. It's at the beginning of '67 that, as, at least as far as I understand it, that the Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals really come on the scenes. That's a, that's the other kind of major touch point for what Southern Soul is. But it's it's a little bit of a baton of a baton being handed off there from Otis to Aretha as kind of the leader of that particular sound, uh, because until '67 when Otis dies, it's been in stacks.
that's that's really just the point. Is like all of this stuff really came out of this this studio. And you mentioned the the racial tension in Memphis itself. It's obviously a you know a, uh, it's in Tennessee, which is not the deep South if you look on a map. But it's you know ten, Memphis is on the edge of not only Arkansas but also Mississippi. You know, it's a very uh, it's a it's a large city. I think at some points in or probably not by then, but until Atlanta passed it at some point, it's probably the largest city in the South. I think. Uh, and this is a record label that is famous for producing music mostly by black artists, not a hundred percent black artists. Bobby Whitlock and Delaney and Bonnie are on it later. Uh, but it's founded by these, these, this white brother and sister and that house band I talked about, the bass player and the guitar player are white, the organist and the drummer are black. And to hear Steve Cropper talk about it, it, he, he essentially says like, um, it's not that it was like a post-racial or a consciously, they weren't, they weren't thinking of themselves that way. It was just a lot of people that, uh, for whom segregation, uh, I guess it was so far out of their minds that they themselves would organize them li- their lives that way, that even though they were in a segregated city, it wasn't something that, that they, it wasn't like part of the founding of stacks. It's just, that's not who Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton were. That's not who their producers and, and artists were. And yet, and I, I don't know. If, they were just, they were just people who liked played well with each other, and yeah. that's what matters. That the music was great, and they're like, yeah, all right, let's let's be in the band, and, 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 and yeah, race Later on, Watt Stacks happens under the second owner, uh, and uh, that's a little bit different. But up to the up to the point of Otis's career, you don't have a whole ton of that happening. It's it's. Uh, I'm not saying it was like an intentional big kumbaya thing, but the the point is just that it was a really integrated workplace uh, where all these people are working together. You do have black artists becoming producers and, and like almost A&R people. Uh, Otis himself discovered Arthur Conley and got him signed by And Atlantic. Otis has like almost complete artistic independence. You know, he can like make his own decisions. He's not being pushed around or managed by like the label that's forcing him to like, you know, basically put out Motown albums, you yep. know, so you know, that kind yeah. of filler. Yep. So anyway, that's the, that's kind of the scene here is it's a really different place from really any other, I mean, and a different period from any other uh, example in, in American music history. It's, it's very intense. It's super cool. And it, it led to a lot of awesome music. set it up like this scott do you have any thoughts before i just introduce otis the man i think we dive into the work okay well i mean who is otis redding i mean you know him of course obviously is the guy who sings uh well actually i i like to think that i know of otis redding as uh the dude who michael bolton covered <laughs> that's the way i like to think i think actually you know uh scott was he's going to talk about the first time he ever heard sitting on the dock of the bay and I won't reveal it. But uh, I have to say my first Otis memory might have been Michael Bolt. And I think, you know, boy, that, that's the kind of thing that's going to turn a man off of him. That, that's uh, the first uh, time, by the way, and I'm sure it happened before then, but that's the first time I really heard Michael Bolton getting shredded for, <laughs> for, for trying to cover sitting on the dock of the bay. Like, people were really outraged, <laughs> more so than usual, about a Michael Bolton song and album because he had the termidity to try to cover 
dock of the bay. He said, keep Otis's music out of your mouth, Michael. <laughs> That's a slander. That's a slander. And who was Otis? Otis was just a kid who was born in Georgia. And I think when he moved pretty, I think his dad was just like a sharecropper. His family moved when he was really young to Macon, Georgia, which is this remarkable small town that keeps seeming to spit up wonderful musicians. And there actually might be a unifying theme in guests, Andrew, now that I think about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, what is it about Macon, okay? He grew up there, and, you know, I think he uh, you know, went to work as a record job or things like that. It, his first break in the music business, I think, really was when he got he fell in with his friend Johnny Jenkins, who was a guitarist. And then Redding actually played the piano, of all things. He was the, he was the piano player. Um, and then, of course, he'd take, you know, a song or two in the set or something like that. And he moves around. I think he moves to L.A. for a little bit, and he records like a couple one-off singles or something like that. But the way he really gets his start is actually just one of those wonderful, beautiful random chance stories. Uh, he's actually it's uh, he knows he knows uh, Phil Walton, who of course later would go on you know found Capricorn Records, you know, and manage the Almond Brothers and all that. Um, but uh, you know, Almond or Walden isn't managing Otis Redding. I don't think he's managing his buddy Johnny Jenkins, and he's like, "Well, I got Jenkins a gig at this place called Stacks Vault in Memphis. Everybody knows what Stacks is." And so Otis is just like driving him to the gig. Okay, he's not going there to sing. He's not going there to play. He's just driving him there and back. He's the wheels, and the, the gig actually doesn't go that well. Uh, you know, apparently Jenkins is just not a match. I don't know if there was any recordings that were kept from it, but at the end of the session, Otis just, you know, kind of barges in and says, Hey, hey guys, you mind if I just take a pass? Kind of like that we do in like, you know, the shows, like, can I just like do two songs? And so he refer he records those first two songs. And I just have to imagine like the guy in the studio listens to Otis, open his mouth and sing. And he sings these arms of mine, and then like they're looking at each other. Steve Cropper's looking at each other, and they're thinking, "Son, you got a contract." These arms of mine. And Johnny Jenkins, by the way, uh, con contributes to that uh, unity. It just occurred to me that he's on the Dwayne Allman anthology, by the way, because Dwayne mm -hmm. played on a Johnny Jenkins thing probably 10 years later. So, yeah, th so he cuts these arms of mine. He wrote that song. And if, no, if, if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to that yet, uh, one thing that you'll observe if you, you know, if this, if this episode kicks you know, into a you know, kick of listening to Otis is how young his voice sounds then. Yeah. He, he's 21 mm -hmm. and you know he died at 26 it's not like he was an old man or even a middle-aged man when he died 
but you can hear a youthfulness. Um, and it, you know, you might, you might say that as he, you know, sang more and more and became more professional, he had to manipulate his voice differently or whatever. But, uh, yeah, there's a reason that that song and the way he sang it cut through, uh, you know, at, even though it, it, you know, and this is, I, I think that I mentioned this to you before Scott, but that song, if you're not interested in listening to soul music, if you're not interested in listening to this, to this stuff, you might think that that song sounds an awful lot like about 10 or 15 other songs that are on these records. You know, what Steve Cropper referred to them as 12, eight ballads, mm-hmm. um, you know, referring to the time signature and yeah. All right. Well, if you just describe it musically, then it's a lot like a lot of other music that was available at the time and whatever. Uh, but that is not, that just doesn't capture what you get out of listening to Otis. So the, sim- his vocal, and, and that's the first thing you hear for even in the youthful is his youthful, most young sounding tone is still like, nobody sounds like that. And, uh, that's by the way, why everyone was angry at Bolton. I was like, don't, don't try to imitate Otis <laughs> Redding. It's like some voices were not meant to be imitated, you know? And that's when we, Scott was saying, well, you know, I was, I was reflecting, he was talking about why isn't there a lot of scholarship about writing? I, I reflect myself, well, well, I actually haven't been there too many covers of this stuff outside of a few famous ones we'll discuss. And the reason is, is because, man, you, you, you walk in, covering Otis Redding is kind of like trying to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Many try, but few are truly found worthy. You know, we all, we all fall short, so you better be careful. This guy's voice was unique from the second it came on the scene. And, of course, the only thing is is you wouldn't know it from his second single, which is hilarious because, man, he did the same thing that Paul McCartney would do a decade later and for some dumbass reason decided to make a (laughs) single out of Mary Had a Little Lamb. What do you guys think of that silly thing? I did not re-listen to it for this episode. It's been a long time since I listened. I mean, so I, it's uh, it's the exception to the rule, which is if Otis is doing it, it's probably worth listening to. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the other thing that he was doing then, and, and uh, um, it, this also refers back to the Macon thing, is he was he would do like these uh, Little Richard songs or Little yeah. Richard-esque songs. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, that stuff didn't really, I mean... Th- that is not that's not the way in which to to discover the Otis difference you know the, that kind of uh really uh generic you know early late right. late 50s early it's 60s rock and roll it's just not what he was meant to do thing is is that his apprenticeship is so amazingly short and i guess this is a real harbinger of things to come but just about how quickly he was going to grow and find a unique sound because while he's still in this these early these these first few singles have all been compiled onto his first two records the one first one's called pain in my heart and then the other one's called uh what was it i can't remember the title yeah Yeah, that's what it is and the reason i don't really have the title there in my my immediately to my fingertips is because i don't really think of those as albums these are those are more of the compilations you know like stuff that spans sessions over like about two years so it, it makes a lot more sense i think to just think of these as singles although you can find all the material on those first two records and i guess you know you know his apprenticeship he's still going to continue growing but like it basically ends immediately with pain in my heart Mm -hmm. which is just a 
staggering performance. The minute the Rolling Stones heard it, they knew they had to cover it. Their version is decent, but it's nowhere really nearly as good as Otis's because Mick Jagger, my friend, you don't have that horn-like voice. And this is the first time you really hear Otis just soar Mm -hmm. when he goes and he sings, you know, I want you to love me, love me, love me, love me. Yeah, and then the horns just come stomping in as they, they charge forward. This is classic early 60s soul. This stuff just sings to my heart. And all the days has begun to get rough. Said I want you to love me, love me, love me, baby. Will I get enough? Oh. Pain in my heart, a little pain in my heart. Stop this little pain in my heart. Stop this little pain in my heart. Someone stop this pain. It's the first song Someone on Pain in My Heart. And so if that's if that's your entry point for Otis Redding, if you're gonna start with the first album and the first song, it's probably a good uh, good way me- to do it. Well, a good way to do it, but it's a good measure of how much you'll like Otis Redding. Because if you don't sort of get these chills down your spine while listening to him perform Pain in My Heart, which is one of his, you know, his very best early songs, then maybe maybe it's not for you. But it's for me. And I still get those chills when I hear him belt out Pain in My Heart and I hear that band behind him play so well. And you hear him pleading at the end for someone to stop the pain, that pain in his heart, and how he uses his voice as as both a weapon and an instrument, you know, uh, getting loud and getting soft and, and manipulating, manipulating the syllables as he delivers them and lingering on certain, certain words or certain notes at 21 and 22, he's, he's already essentially mastered that, that instrument of his voice. It's incredible. Yeah. What I think the, the so this song in particular, this record, the, well, this song is the first, uh, thing you're going to hear to get you this Otis you know this the essence of Otis but you will also get the band we're talking about especially Cropper yes yes yeah and wow. Cro- and Cropper and Otis became uh uh you know one of the closest relationships um in in each other's lives uh Cropper talked about how he or I see Cropper is still alive by the way he's like 80 or 81 years old right now uh he he talks about how he looked up to Otis although he was a, a three or four four years older than Otis I think uh but uh, but he looked up to Otis and kind of the, you know, the uh, confidence and, and brashness and everything that Otis had. Uh, but those two working together. And so you get a great dose of what, of what makes Steve Cropper great, too. And, and you know what? Similar to Otis, I mean, Otis, you know, we can talk about other soul artists that had better vocal instruments in terms of range ability to to sound a little bit different you know we're going to have to talk about sam cook here sam cook is one of the greatest pop singers of all time had one of the most you know clear voices he could hit different notes and or same like eddie kendricks with the falsetto that's not the otis approach he doesn't have that in his arsenal yeah even even other kind of uh you know more emotional soul guys like david ruffin could do falsetto better i think wilson pickett had more range whatever but 
you could say all that stuff about Steve Cropper as a guitar player too, right? He doesn't play fast. He doesn't uh, play that many <laughs> different styles. His guitar almost always sounds pretty much exactly the same. And yet there's that, that is my, you know, one of my two or three favorite guitar players of all time. Cause that's not all there is to music. And so that this, that song in particular, pain, pain in my heart, it's a great way to, to kind of get what that connection between Cropper and Otis was like. I really love like some of these early singles, even though they pile it on a bit thick. I mean, I think there, there's one one of his early ones is something called "Lil Old Me." Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it because it, it's hilarious. And I guess you know if you could ever accuse Otis of of ever being you know stereotypical in some ways, is like you know the over the top blues man. Well, then here it is. This is him in his most comically over Otis. I will look any way you want me to look, and I will sing any way you want me to sing. And all this hysterical tear stained leading this man on his knees, begging you, hands around your ankles. You really have to have truly supernatural vocal commitment in order to get away with that kind of crap, man. Ain't nobody hilarious and ridiculous is a miracle in its own way he's already mastered the art of vestibule commitment there are other great singles as jeff said these first two albums are probably best thought of as, as collections of of, uh, of these early um songs before he'd sort of gone to make statements with his albums that'd be a little more um a more themed but you know on the on this pain in my heart album You've got the title track, of course, and we already talked about these arms of mine. And there's covers, too. He does Stand By Me, he does You Send Me, he does uh, Louie Louie as well. And uh, Andrew had mentioned earlier, um, you know, the Little Richard stuff, and you got Lucille here, which is which is uh, Little Richard. By the actually. way, not even he can make Louie Louie interesting, unfortunately. <laughs> I have to say. I'm, I've heard that song enough for one no, life. The only thing that can make that song interesting is if 11-year-olds are playing in their garage while you're walking by in Halloween. That's, <laughs> exactly. That's, what makes that, that makes, that's about it. The cute factor is about all you got going forward now. Um, but the the singles would continue to 64 i don't know if we want to sort of slide forward a bit to yeah we can we go i mean i definitely don't want to leave without mentioning security man i think that's a really that's great right. early otis song right you know and it got when the well, first one was really immediately like a likable vocal hook there's there's something about redding's voice that i find so prepossessing because it has this openness to it this honesty this sort of straightforwardness it's bluff and it's gruff and he's just, you know, being very, like, telling you how he feels. And, you know, there doesn't seem to be any sort of deception or anything he's hiding at all. I want security, yeah. I'm telling you once again. Oh, security. And I want it
a really friendly guy who's just speaking his mind to you. And it really comes through on stuff like security or like a song like Mr. Pitiful, which is, you know, him making fun of himself. I think it was, you know, him and Steve Cropper riding to the studio. They just got in some review talking about how, you know, he sounds like he's this weeping, bawling, crying, <laughs> you know, you know, over the top tear stained wretch. Right. And so like, you know. Cropper said he, he thought of it in the shower, and he, Otis he, he picks him up. They're driving into the studio. It's like you know, yeah, maybe you're Mr. Pitiful, and so they start working up the lyric, and they record this thing in like like ten minutes or something like that. It's like a take, and it's done, and it's perfect early reading. <laughs> think that that that's probably the right song to focus on as the transition out of this era because that song easily could have been on any of the next you know six records or whatever whatever we cut off the posthumous stuff as real records but that that song fits with otis kind of once he's really reached his uh his peak powers um he has such wit and charm he, he he's not for once he's not heavy at all he's just right. very kind of yes. like lighthearted yeah. and right. affable yeah, no, totally. He has a different gear, a totally different gear. You didn't think he could do comedy, but he can do comedy too. Yeah, and you know that song becomes come, you know, so, kind of enduring. I mean, I I know Taj Mahal covered it, uh, not in his prime, but but when he was you know younger than like seventy five or eighty or whatever he is now, and it's in what's that movie about the Irish soul band? Uh, uh the uh, oh, I know what you, the commitments. Yeah. They they sing they sing it in that in that movie. I mean, that's, that's one that's kind of it's gotten it's kind of gotten out of uh, the early Otis. You know, it, it's broken into the mainstream a little bit more. Um, the other thing about this, the first record and the second, I mean, both of these um, and everything up until uh, uh, he died, every single one of these records has a Sam Cooke cover on it, uh, or two or three. Uh, one of them, I think, the only cover is the Tennessee Waltz, but there's no possibility that he got that idea anywhere else from listening to Sam Cooke. Right. So you begin to get this sense that, you know, Sam Cooke stood head and shoulders above the rest of the, you know, because he, he covers all these other artists as well. I mean, he covers... Uh, but he kept coming Richard. back to Cooke. Yeah. He, he truly felt like now that was the guy he was aiming for. Yeah, that's like, and even though, what's what's really interesting about it is... Uh, such different voices. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. Otis do, isn't afraid of that. You know, he does things very differently from Sam Cooke, but he seems to think that Sam Cooke's songs are, a, are the right way to express yourself. You know, he wasn't bound to Sam Cooke's arrangements and vocal stylings and things like that. And there are examples later that we can talk about that are really, really different from the original. But the fact that he thinks of Sam Cooke, who, who and I don't know how much we've, you guys have talked about this on your show in the past, but I mean, Sam Cooke really is one of the major talents in American music uh, who probably is 
is underappreciated today for how enormously talented and impactful he was. He died at exactly the wrong time. He died just as the rock world was exploding. I mean, 1963, 64, was it? I mean, uh, yeah, and then, the, then the Beatles land, and you know, the world has changed. The commercial sales are so much higher. That's yep. what it is. But Otis never let that go. He he clearly. I mean, so he, you know, some of these are while Sam Cooke's still alive and and writing hits. But but after he died, too, Otis kept doing these songs again. That just really speaks to the quality of Sam Cooke's work that Otis, a very different artist found those songs, like one of his favorite ways to express his own musical, you know, uh, ideas. I think it also speaks to the quality that he's thinking really carefully about what a cover means and what purpose it serves. Like, why is he going to do this song? Sometimes it's just, Hey, that's a fun groove. I think there's one cover of his, I might accuse of being maybe slightly cheap, but so many of his covers are never cheap. You might say that you don't like it as much as the original or this or that, but he covers songs for the right reason. There's always something uniquely Otis about the way he does anything. And of course, a lot of that is just because of his the force of his personality. His musical personality is just so unstoppable. It's this all-conquering force. brings me to uh, uh, there are a couple songs from this era that are great but there's one that's from the second album that i you know before we get to the otis blue era i just have to comment on one of my favorite writing tracks of all time and it's certainly one of my favorite stones covers of all time because that's how strong my love is is one of the supreme sort of early mid 60s soul tracks uh i think has ever been recorded from conception i think it's i think it's a cover but it's like every, everybody was covering everyone else immediately on the label. So it's like a four-day cover of a four-day-old song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, Otis basically makes it his original. And then the Stones did a fantastic version of But listen to that passion in his voice when he sings, you know, that's how strong my love is. And the horns just come soaring in. It's frankly a miracle that the Stones didn't humiliate themselves trying to cover this song because this song goes places emotionally it is such a beautiful ballad how be the ocean so deep and wide and get all the tears whenever you can i'll be the breeze after the storm is gone to dry your eyes Love. 
great. I, and I don't remember if I've even told Scott this story, but when I was between my first two years of college, I worked on a farm in upstate New York, and uh, it was my boss was the manager of the farm, but I, I didn't really work for the owner of the farm, who was I think a relatively wealthy. Well, I know he's a relatively wealthy business guy, and he had a Fourth of July party, and the band for the Fourth of July party, which he didn't arrange, one of his uh, his neighbors who was a, a musician in that area. Uh, did but the band included drummer Levon Helm and keyboardist Garth Hudson, pretty who, good band. Yeah, who also lived in the area, you know. Like, so Decent pickup band. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so they say they did this song. It was uh yeah. So I've seen, and this was at a time when Levon couldn't sing, but on right. this and then on the song Down Home Blues, which was made famous by ZZ Hill in the '80s. But uh, Levon could not help himself. He's back there making almost no noise at all, but he's singing along because of uh-huh. what great great material it is this song and that's you know it, you you're right that the stones are taking a risk in covering otis but that particular song is so fantastic that it, it actually was it, it, this is just a bunch of people playing under a tent on a farm and it was awesome i mean it's it's a simple enough song that it, like if you're being honest about it you can do a good job you know if you're not being pretentious and doing it you can do it uh the other only other one from this era that i want to make sure we mention because it's, it's really a deep cut uh, that I I think is great is home in your heart again. That's it's kind of one that's song, yeah. it has more to do with kind of where Otis went for the next couple three records, uh, like Mister Pitiful does, and it's towards the end of that second record of uh, uh, the great soul ballads one, whatever it's called. But that's that's another one I just want to mention. Getting back to the Sam Cooke discussion on this second album, you have a, a cover, of course. And nothing can change this love. His vocals, Redding's vocals are outstanding on this one. I love the little bit, you know, apple of my eye, sweet cherry pie, you can be my cake and ice cream. Uh, Otis Redding delivering those lines. And there's a song that uh, Otis Redding wrote here that clearly, in my mind, is, is influenced by Cook. He was such an influence on his music overall, but Chained and Bound yeah. is, uh, is was a single that, that did pretty well especially in the r&b chart and and that's one that i think has a lot of of sam cook influence uh, the, the story of heartbreak and sort of the, the low key uh, uh aggression included in the sound like chained and bound and those memphis horns just sparkle on that track that's one of the best from this era Darling,
I mean, I, there's also your one and only man, and the only reason I wouldn't mention it here is because I think that one definitely got better live. He picks up the tempo on that. It's kind of a more regal strut uh, of all things on the studio recording, and then when he takes it out onto like the whiskey a go go or like the you know, the motor or not the the European tour, the Stax tour, it's just amped up, sped up, pepped up, and it, it really kind of finds its gear there. Um, but of course, speaking of finding your gear. This is, to me, the moment of the big gear shift. You know, all these artists, right? We think of them as we conceive of them as having inflection points in their career, right? Where does it, quote, change for them? And, I, you know, Andrew said he thought it might be around Mr. Pitiful. I would identify it right here because what comes next for Redding is qualitatively different than those first two records. Those two records were, of course, just compilations of random singles. And I think maybe a couple of studio sessions. Uh, but then, you know, in the span of one day, I believe it was like a 24-hour session, mm-hmm. Otis Redding goes into the Staxville Studios with you know Steve Cropper, Duck Dunn. I believe Isaac Hayes is now there playing piano as well. Um, and he records Otis Blue. I've been loving you too long to stop now. And you want to be free My love is going stronger As you become a habit to me Who am loving you Too long I don't want to stop now Otis Blue is basically, I say, I don't want to call it singular in the soul album era, because it's not because Otis himself is going to be following it up with many albums that are just as good. But it was a change. It was certainly so far away from what Motown was doing at the same time, where every album was just singles and like you know some quickie filler that's usually just kind of a hacked off cover of a song that the teeny boppers or the olds are gonna like you know uh otis gave us an album in full this is just 12 tracks of glorious music and so much good music there's an incredible b-side for these sessions that is super famous that they didn't even put on the album it's called i'm depending on you now I can criticize it a little bit here and there these days, you know, if I'm you know, attacking it with the harshest standards. But Otis Blue is Otis Redding's first real album as an album. And if you think of it that way, it is one hell of a debut.
beginning with a weird song, Old Man Trouble. I mean, it's a this... really dark and weird one. You know, it's got those those really in kind of like you know dark sounding runs on the yeah. guitar from Cropper. That's one of my favorites, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's got a attraction that's hard to kind of articulate because it's it's not pretty, it's not peppy, it's uh, it's not all that. I mean, it's rhythmic, but it doesn't stay in. Uh, you know, it has all these breaks. And so it's a, it's a weird song, but it does speak to the idea of like he was putting an album together here. Like that's not, I mean, they may have released it as a single, but it is not a conventional single kind of thing. Nope. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not a Sun Records two minute, 12 second single that everybody will like. to what winds up being the most, well, maybe the second most famous song he ever wrote because everybody knows he wrote Dock of the Bay, but Respect. Um, so the only is, reason it is is because by gum Aretha stole it from him. Yeah, she took it from him. but uh, it, And it's it's a very different sound, uh, but it it is that it it's the song that Aretha Franklin, her career, you know, took off. Aretha was recording way back in the early 60s on Columbia doing these, uh, you know, Gospel. like... Yeah, uh, a lot of like pop standard stuff, you know, a bunch oh. of great American songbook stuff, like six records worth or something. And then she gets to Atlantic and the first thing she does is release Respect and her career takes off like a rocket that never came back to earth. So uh, that song is on there in its original form. There's also, by the way, I'm just going to mention this because uh, uh, I owe it to my own dad, but there's a cover by a Detroit Ann Arbor uh, uh, 60s uh, kind of not exactly a garage band, you know, kind of a white boy soul band called The Rationals. That's also very good and a good cover of Respect. But uh, that song, you know, kind of, that's when you when you know looking back that Otis's work, you know, the songs that he wrote were going to be enduring in a way that not everybody's are. Scott, what are look your thoughts at, on this one? Look at the song titles on this record, right? Respect, Satisfaction, My Girl. I've been loving you too long. Wonderful I mean. world. I mean, <laughs> um, just just epic song choices, first of all. And the way that's, that the songs are presented here, there is, there is uh, first of all, a, a, a greater comfort. Not that there wasn't a comfort, but an even greater comfort between Otis and the band. And Otis himself, that confidence, that boldness is just there in spades on this record. And one of the things about the Stax songs, Stax artists, and you know, maybe Southern artists generally is the, the, the having no fear of sort of crossing uh, the genre boundaries, whether it be more Motown-esque in places, more blues-centered in places. Uh, I mean, the Stones and, and, and Otis Redding were going back and forth, uh, British rock and Southern soul and country, uh, as would be on an album to come, uh, uh, as Andrew mentioned earlier. Um, 
he's just not afraid to do any of that. And so these songs really are are are, are able to sort of cross these these lines that Motown songs really don't necessarily. On this record, like a Wonderful World, that cover of the song that almost everyone knows, the edge and the roughness that the MGs and Otis give this song is something else. It changes this the shape of the song to me. The original Wonderful World, the one everyone knows, um, you're kind of like, well, why don't you know these things? Why don't you know about history? You seem like a fine, upstanding young man. Why don't you know? Yeah. Why don't you know these things? These ways yeah. of the world. You kind of b- don't believe Sam Cooke that he wasn't good at algebra. Sure. Yeah. But you know what? When Otis sings it, you believe it. He doesn't. <laughs> he he doesn't know this stuff. He probably dropped out. He's 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 a blue collar guy. He's working. You know exactly why he doesn't know those things. Uh, it's t- totally clear in the way the song is performed and delivered by Otis Redding on That's such a delightful world. insight, Scott, that the, the Cook sings it as just like a, a sly imposture. Yeah. Like he's lying to you. Yes. Whereas Otis sings it like, yeah, no, it's like I'm the mayor of Simpleton. You know? I, I really don't know anything, but, uh, <laughs> right? I mean, I really it's feel that way. That's wonderful. That's so right. I don't claim to be an A student. Trouble, which is one of my favorite songs on this record. I, I, I love it. And the other one I, I would highlight here is Down in the Valley, a uh, cover of a Solomon Burke hit from some years ago. This is one where I'm I, I'm mowing the lawn listening to Otis this past weekend. I get to Down in the Valley on Otis Blue, and I've heard it before, but I, I, I got to stop. I'm, you know, yeah. I'm on a tractor. I got to stop because you hear Otis, all the, all the little sort of James Brownish little, huh, Good God Almighty! Like he is giving his all of him, everything, heart and soul. It's just like you think, like James Brown's having a heart attack when he's giving (laughs) his his performances. Like Otis is definitely laboring through that. Yes, it's just unreal the way he gives a vocal performance, and that is a song where Booker T and the MGs are just stomping and swinging through this performance. It's a fantastic band feel. Uh, Yeah, Old Man Trouble and Down in the Valley are two of my all-time favorite Otis Redding songs, and they're both here on, on, on Otis Blue. Now, have you ever been lonely, lonely? Now, have you ever said, did you ever really need someone for me who really
covers here are amazing. The first thing I want to talk about, though, is that this is the beginning of that that sound. This is when what I define is like the Otis sound in my mind that I just think of like candy, just like I could listen to it all day, every day, forever, is that, that locked into the pocket horn groove, horn-driven stomp, cropper, done, you just pounding away with Al Jackson there, and you know, the horns go do 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 do. And in this 1965 iteration of it, it's a little more brittle still. There's a little more treble in it. it it's going to thicken up later on. I notice his career. It's going to become a little deeper and a little more gritty. But right now, it's got this peppy kind of a poppy, nervous energy to it, and that's what makes Satisfaction just so much damn fun. I can't get no satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. Boy, I'm not entirely read up most recently on like what the, the current state of Otis' knowledge is, so I, I don't know if my version of this story is correct. But the way I understood it is that he'd never even heard the song yet. It had just come out. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I think you know, Steve Cropper brings it into the studio and then he listens to it once. And he's like, all right, well, let's do that. Because <laughs> he's, like, he's like, they're doing me. And they were. Keith Richards wrote that basketball buzzer honk guitar tone of Satisfaction as a direct sonic tribute to the Stax Volt horn sound. So Otis heard it, laughed, loved it, turned it around. And then you have this perfect embodiment of 1965 Stax in a cover of Satisfaction that. Boy, it's a totally different beast than the Rolling Stones version, and I love it every bit as much. previous show that this is actually a superior version yeah. to the Rolling Stones version. Whoa. Do you stand by that? I, I gosh, you know, I, it's just like I go back and forth on a change is going to come. Sam Cook versus <laughs> Otis Redding, which is obviously a debate we could have with Andrew here. Yeah, I waver. It's just about the mood, man. Sometimes here's the difference. Here's the difference. Okay, satisfaction is sung by the Rolling Stones. Is a bunch of sullen, surly kind of spoiled teenagers. Okay, I can't get into satisfaction. I want to go out and get my jollies with the models and you know do drugs. But when Otis sings it, he's just a hardworking man. You know. He's a hard-working man who's put in his day's work. When he comes home, my gum, he'd like a little respect. <laughs> <laughs> you see, it's the same vibe. It's that same kind of vibe, and that's why respect and satisfaction almost kind of go together as a pair in my mind on this record. I, I really like this uh, Otis being the blue-collar uh, soul singer thing. Cause it, totally it what he is. is t- it's really unified, too. It makes a ton of sense, and it, even when we get to Tramp, it's going to be there, too. But mm-hmm. uh, 
okay so satisfaction i think is a genius cover i think it's it's totally awesome i assume cropper produced it and you get that that really cool uh guitar and bass double on like the turnarounds I don't know if you remember the part I'm talking about here, Jeff, but it it yeah. uh, it's like it brings a funkiness to it. I the only reason I want to say that this is better than the original version of Satisfaction is because I don't want to sound like a total lunatic, but I don't I have no idea the last time I listened sometimes to. Sometimes you just want to hear one, and sometimes you want to hear the other. It's it's a, as I said, you don't have to pick between Stacks and Motown. You don't have to pick. These are two equally ver- worthy interpretations and no one's going to have to knock the other one and that that's what's beautiful about what Otis did with these covers yeah, he I mean, just I, immediately yeah. erected one that you can like just as much yeah I, that's obviously right but I will say I seek this recording out frequently probably you know every month or two I pull this particular song up and I haven't done that with the Rolling Stones satisfaction since I was like 17 or 18. So I guess that is, that's voting but, with your but feet. But you do prefer Sam's version of a change is going to come. Yeah, I want to talk about that for just a second. So I, this is my take on that. So I think all these Sam Cooke covers are totally cool. Like my, I remember my brother Sam, uh, not named after Sam Cooke as far as I know, but it wouldn't <laughs> shock me because in our household we were basically raised on Sam Cooke and Hank Williams as sort of the uh, the twin scions of all music that came after them. Uh but he, he, I remember when we were in high school listening to this, he didn't like the Wonderful World cover uh, because of the ways in which it sort of breaks from the form uh, that really, Scott, you were kind of talking about, the kind of the organization of it. I don't agree with that. I think that that's, this, that's an example where the Sam Cooke version is perfect. Uh, it's a perfect pop song. This is a perfect soul song, and these things work, you know, together that way. Shake is a more straight of, straight ahead, ver- you know, it's a, it's a, uh, really, this is it's, that song is done later in Cook's career, uh, and he's kind of he's he's maybe be, beginning to become a kind of artist that's more like where Otis went, and so that song works perfectly. It's a very yeah, you much know, more much more upbeat, groove oriented number. And that's yeah, why. yeah, totally. And Again, yeah. I think of Shake, and I think like I, 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 they almost come together in my mind as a unity. They are both equal in every respect. Yeah, I, I think so too. But then change is going to come. The, the I guess this is the difference is you know so that song is written. Uh, when Sam Cooke hears Bob Dylan's blowing in the wind and he says to his, I don't remember who he's talking to, his manager, his producer, his bandmates, whatever, something like, uh, do we have to let this guy write our protest music? Not, I don't even think because he thought it was bad so much as just kind of like, I don't need Bob Should Dylan. Should be our voice. Yeah. yeah. And, speak and, for ourselves. Yeah, Cooke much more than Otis ever was at least um, uh, publicly. Cooke was kind of a part of the, the, the early civil, rights, civil rights era. Right, right. right. Then I go Say, brother, help me, please. But he winds up knocking me back down on my knees. Oh, there have been times. Oh, 
maybe maybe even impacting his own death. That's at least a, a theory that's out there that he was kind of targeted because he was really independent. I think he, he wound up becoming like his own agent or manager or something like that. Really had a lot of independence on purpose. Um, and uh, and that, that was a bigger part of his story. So he writes this song, and Change, uh, Change is Gonna Come. And I guess my view on it is I don't think... So Otis is my favorite soul singer. Aretha Franklin is my other favorite soul singer. They both covered this song. And my takeaway is if I don't love either of their covers, there's probably never going to be. Oh, George Benson also does a version of it that is really great in all the ways that you can kind of describe it. It's just that I think that the original version, the composition and the performance from Sam Cooke, uh, I guess I just sort of think of it. I don't want to say it's a sacred cow, but I, I think of it as an achievement. It's so and, personal to him. Yeah. Yeah. I just think uh, of it right. Exactly. As an achievement in American music that is more or less singular by an artist who at the time was also more or less singular. You know, there isn't a rival to Sam. I mean, Solomon Burke would maybe be the next closest thing, but his career was only kind of getting going when Sam's is winding down or not really winding down, but comes to an end. Uh, and so I guess I just, I sort of think of that song as being outside of space and time in a way that makes it unfit for an improvised cover, which is what, you know, Otis's style is to kind of vamp beating at the end. Right. And so like he changes some words and you know, he says, I go to see my brother, uh, and, uh, uh, Sam cook says he winds up knocking me back on my knees. And, uh, Otis says, I went and saw my mother and I said, mother, help me please. And it's not that that's a bad lyric. It's just that you don't get the emotional gut punch that you get from the Sam cook version. And so I, I just don't think that that's the best I, you know, I'm not saying I skip it instead of listening to it so much as say, I just don't think it really gets the song, uh, in its fullness, the way a lot of these other covers do, or just the way Sam Cooke's original does. I've asked my brother, will you help me? you guys something about how careful Redding usually is in all of his choices when he does a cover song because like it's very rare you can say hmm I shouldn't have done that I see why you made that change but I don't know if I appreciate it I happen to like this version a lot Mm -hmm. and I won't talk too long about it I think to me it's almost it's just there's two things going on here it's the civil rights message but it's also it's about Otis singing about Sam Cooke and about the influence that Cooke had on his life and his music as a singer. I mean, you're taking this guy's signature song, and you've obviously covered his work so much. You think he even said, "I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, fill the silence of the void of his voice." That's why I put these songs on the record. It was important to him because I think he's clearly so indebted to Cook in so many interesting ways. Um, and so he sings it to him. 
the heartbreak there is almost the heartbreak at the loss of Cook in, in his mind. And that's where I get a lot of the emotion out of it. It doubles. It works both as the civil rights anthem that it is and also on that more personal level. Scott, do you have any thoughts about Otis Blue before we move on to what I guess is yet another, in my mind, kind of a step forward for Otis? Yeah, I just want to mention two things quickly, um, both, I guess, pertaining to uh, vocals, uh, which yeah. is, is, is pretty common for Otis Redding discussion, but he takes on my girl here from The Temptations, and he just, he, he you know, you mentioned just what he was doing with, with Change is Gonna Come. You know, he just twists my girl around enough that it gets you off center. You know, his pauses, his inflections, there's no backing vocals where you expect there to be back, backing vocals, right? Um, and, and does it in his own way and then the other one i wanted well to that's talk- what's remarkable about that is that remember my girl is, is a temptation song which yep. means it's a five-part harmony right. number on top of david ruffin's lead vocal right and so what otis is proving there is that i don't need any other voices i can just, just sing this myself and it's just as compelling because yeah. listening to me sing the phone book is compelling and then the devastating way he delivers the great william bell track you don't miss your water which is one of my favorites. It's, it's the last song on the album, yeah. It is just, uh, it is just amazing what he does with that set of lyrics, um, and, and really brings you down, down low with him uh, as he as he pulls it off. Yeah, that's one, that's one of the great ones. I agree. I kept you crying. thing we just did all this praise of otis blue and geez people if you don't have it go get it there's i don't know how you could not enjoy it maybe as you know as, as scott says if you just don't like soul music well you know you just don't like soul music but if you have even the slightest bit you're gonna love it and yet i actually think redding's next album might be better this is the secret hit of Otis Redding's career, in my opinion. This is the soul album. Actually, Andrew, I'd like to set it up for you because you made a really entertaining comment about this in our pre-show notes about how the name of this album and what it meant to you, the audacity of it. Yeah, you got this developing genre known as soul, and it's known as soul, I think, probably as early as like 60 or so. I'm not sure if I, I never looked up you know, the first uh, people to use it, but what James Brown is doing is considered soul. What Sam Cooke had been doing was considered soul. So then you have this guy show up and he just names his album the Soul Album. And <laughs> And it's and, an album too, by the way. Remember, it's not a singles compilation. This is all the new material. Yep. And it's an album. Uh, everything you said about Otis Blue being an album uh, is true of this one too, right? It's thought out, it makes sense together. It's it's a nice flow. This is like the revolver of soul albums, or like the yeah. rubber soul of soul albums to it, my mind. It's, yeah. And so yeah. what I said to you guys is calling this a soul album would be like George Jones naming one of his albums the country album <laughs> and you know it's like if uh you know if if paul mccartney named an album the country album everybody like oh this is paul mccartney's country album but george jones is one of like the mount rushmore singers of country and if he calls it the country album everybody's gonna go like well what are you know merle haggard's records about then <laughs> well this has to no, no 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 don't worry i'm summarizing it all for you here don't worry yeah. i got the dictionary 
And yeah. in fact, that's what the next one's going to be called. <laughs> that's right. Otis was a particularly arrogant guy. In fact, he seems an unbelievably down to earth. I guess again, yeah. back to those comments that uh, Scott made about the way he changes things uh, in, in some of these covers, you know, kind of bringing him down to earth. But, but yeah, he, so he's he's the king of soul. He knows it. That's another uh, foreshadowing on album title. And it's, it's uh, a great humble brag. It's just yeah. an all time great humble brag. And then the thing is, if you're going to make that kind of boast, boy, you better live up to it. And this record just does from start to finish. I think the first half of this record is just perfect. And it starts with Just One More Day, which I think was the single at the time, the B-side of which is super famous, didn't get on the album. This is another album, classic album, where there's a B-side that's just as famous as anything on the record. But I love Just One More Day, those weeping horns that open the song. And then Otis in that big that heart. His voice is matured now. It's thickened into its full power gives you that heart-wrenching soul vocal and then you realize this is going to be like a heavy soul album this isn't as got as many any poppy moves as otis blue did like you know satisfaction as a cover this one's a little bit dirtier this is as this i said is, this, this is, is the cigarettes l- and coffee this is a late night barn burner that's what i was about to say this is the late night album this is the album that is on at 11 p.m this yeah. is an album that doesn't include anything um up tempo for the sake of being up tempo Right, yeah. it's what Otis wants. The big up tempo number was the one he cut from the record. Right, which no, is that's a it's a which is like yeah. I can't turn it loose, people. It's like one of his most famous songs. It's the one the Blues Brothers made famous, and that was just a B side from these sessions. He didn't put it on the record because conceptually it didn't fit, and that's what the point is that Otis is the only guy in soul music right now making albums and thinking about him in those terms. point though um, when we get to saying our favorite records at the end other than you're you already made the recommendation of people just get this box set you're gonna have to get some kind of compilation because the albums don't have every important thing to have like a major um, artist he's got really great major b-sides yeah that's that's a good point right um so cigarettes and coffee i mean that's like if you like that then you probably are a fan of soul music if you don't like it's that, it's one of the most transcendent songs I've ever. Heard. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's an unbelievable recording. It's an unbelievable recording. Um, I would say that "Dreams to Remember" at the end gets to the same plane 
but it but uh, up to this point it's it and it is it is kind of one of those 12 8 ballads i mean it again you can kind of describe it as a more or less typical you know r&b ballad of the time uh but lyrically and his delivery on it takes it to a, a different plane i mean it, it really is uh as i mean what does he say? It's three o'clock in the morning. You said eleven p.m. at night. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Eleven yeah. p.m. at night, right? Even uh, later than that. Yeah. This yeah. is a late. This is, as I said, put the candlelight on, and this is the perfect album to listen to with like a pot of coffee. It's early in the morning. About a quarter till three I'm sitting here talking with my baby Over cigarettes and coffee And to tell you that Dog, I've been so satisfied Honey, since I've met you Baby, since I met you, oh, oh, faces that I've been around, and all the good-looking girls. I've and that's been. the other thing. It's interesting thing about it. it. Why is it at 3 a.m.? I, I mean, I don't think it's because Otis is a teetotaler. That I mean, first of all, I didn't write the song, but you know, what is a person who's sitting up at 3 a.m. and still drinking coffee doing? You know, and Otis gets you that anxiety, whatever it is that's keeping you up. Uh, Otis has got that kind of, you know, and, uh, you know, he's whatever the lyrics are about still just being a person in that condition. Otis gets that to you. Scott. Good to me is a monument to minimalism. There's there's a handful of Reading tracks. I sort of wrote that note to and um, I'm sure it'll pop up a bit later. This is one of the first where it's a. It's it's a basic drum track. It's sort of a stagnant organ tone. It's not dynamic. And yet you have the, the horns and the vocals on Good To Me merge and, and sort of become one. It's its own instrument. This is another one of those really uh, slow burn tracks that we've been talking about on this soul album. Good To Me is one of my favorites here. I remember those sweet kisses you give me last night. Everybody Makes a Mistake, that's an old Eddie Floyd song, and you can do a lot of great things with Eddie Floyd songs. He, again, the delivery, vocals, really sounds contrite, really sounds sorry. And, of course, the song is a, is a, it's a, it's a warning shot. Take heed. Listen to every word I'm saying, Otis tells us. Don't end up like me, this sad, this lonely, this depressed because of your mistake. The way he delivers those lines 
is really special. And the other one I'll, I'll point to is one that I think is probably one of his most Motown sounding tracks. It's one of the more poppy songs in the old way. Um, Which is more more Motown sounding than the Motown cover? Yeah. <laughs> in, in this case, yeah, because that... Yeah, I know. It's, yeah. I think that's what it's yeah. for. You're right. Yeah, that cover of It's Growing, if you listen to the original Temptations version of it, there's probably... I mean, I see Smokey wrote it, so there's probably also a, a, some version that Smokey put out, but you know, that has those characteristics of Motown. It's smoother. Mm, it's all it's these harmonies. David Ruffin is really refined in it, too. He doesn't have that rasp that he sometimes would get later on. Yeah. Yeah, it's smooth. It's and then, yeah. And then Otis is just growling his way through it slowly. But I interrupted you, Scott. What was the other one you wanted to compare most to Motown? No, that's the one. Oh, well, wait. yeah. So, well, so he's growing. What, what I like, what, what is cool about it to me are the... Oh, any old way. Any old way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so right, that one is kind of it's more of a smoother pop song. It just kind of flows. It's it's easy to listen to. It's growing is has all these staccato uh, hits by the band. I mean, the, you'd say drum hits, but also the horns are doing it along with him. It's similarly done on his version of Chain Gang, which is really different from yes, the original. Very, yeah. uh, and I think that's just another spectacular reinterpretation. Yeah, yeah, those two are kind of a they're really sim- they they come across similarly here and give the give the album the feel. That you're talking about, I think, uh, Jeff, of the kind of this is Otis in full. I mean, you know, these didn't become uh, uh, live standards as far as I can tell, but they they are kind of more like what it's just like to experience Otis. personally quit the show if we didn't discuss the last song on this record and drop a clip in because my gosh it's the phone number of stack studios itself six three four five seven eight nine soulsville usa first time i actually ever heard this song believe it or not was in a hissy bootleg uh performance by bruce springsteen of all people <laughs> from like 1973 or something like that back in his early wild and woolly days and that was even great there and then to go back and hear this version it's an eddie floyd song steve cropper and eddie floyd i mean this is a songwriting partnership that's just it's like cropper and redding these guys just put out so much gold and this is a great version of it yes yeah, true I, I think uh so cropper co- co-writes uh all the stuff we talked about plus doc of the bay which we'll get to he co-writes this with eddie floyd becomes uh 
well, either this or Knock on Wood, which he also co-wrote, become Eddie Floyd's biggest hit, and then he co-writes in The Midnight Hour with Wilson Pickett. If you need a co-write, you can do <laughs> much worse Steve. than yes. Steve Cropper. Yeah. Now, the reason I think it's so great is just because it, that, so that song is, it, it's got the phone number for the studio on it. They call it Soulsville USA, which kind of gets into this whole, the soul album thing, right? They were very confident in what they were putting together there. And then the fact that it's Cropper, who we already talked about how close he was with uh, Otis. He's, he is Booker T and MGs. He's producing all these records, but he's also doing this with Eddie Floyd. Who's also writing for other people. Uh, the last uh, record we talked about William Bell writing, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Water till your well is dry. William Bell and Booker T also co-wrote born under a bad sign, which becomes a big hit for Albert King. Who's recording on stacks at the time. The point I'm getting at here is just like, these guys are all basically living at the studio yeah, they're all interacting all this time with together. each other, living on top of each other. The music is just like you cross fertilizing. A hundred percent, exactly. And they're right; they're they're supporting one another. The other, they would tour. I mean, this is very typical of the time, but they're touring out as sort of label tours. And it's uh, it it that that cover. I don't actually prefer it to the to the Eddie Floyd version, uh, uh, but uh, because it's just one of the times when Eddie Floyd's you know it's right. his song. He, it makes a lot of sense. It works. It's fantastic. Yeah. But right, it just it gets to that whole like this is what was happening there. That vibe that we were talking right. about early on. That this this is a great example. These two records are a great example of all that cross pollination, all these guys working together and really living together. thoughts or do we want to move on to otis in late 66 let's move on because this is fascinating to me this is the record i've always thought of as sort of otis redding's self-conscious pop play and i'm going to point out how self-possessed redding was as a man you know he knew what he wanted to do with his career the thing that really distinguished redding from almost all the other soul artists of his time we talk about he was like a really kind of straightforward happy honest guy but he also knew where he wanted to go and he had a goal he wanted to cross over he did not want to sit just in the r&b soul you know you know niche in just in that place any more than like we talked about willie nelson crossing over like why is he stuck in the country box when it should be just great music mm -hmm. period well redding knew exactly where he wanted to go with it and he had a plan he was such a canny strategist in some ways because I think of this as is, is his sort of pop move. And, and I think for that reason, I consider it to be a much lighter album than the, sort of the heaviness of the soul album. And I guess maybe maybe the frothiest Reading album of all time. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, I joked the, you know, the, the soul albums last time. Well, now he's giving you the dictionary. <laughs> and, and believe me, it is complete and unbelievable. This thing came out in October of 1966. And it gets universally great reviews um, in but I, I think maybe I'm always biased by the fact that it starts with Sad Song, which is just this delightful thing, but certainly the poppiest thing he'd ever done up until this point. I think that that's the way I see him turning on this one. It's a lovely song, y'all. Sweet music, honey. It gets to line over. It tells a story. You got to get the message. A strong message. 
Shouldn't it have been the complete and unabridged dictionary of soul? I mean, yes. We're getting into the nitty-gritty on naming albums. And by the way, that is a fabulous album cover. Yeah, <laughs> yeah God, it is. that should be up on a wall in my room. Oh, it's, it's so nice. It's wonderful. So this is, um, if I remember correctly, this is the, the first half is essentially covers. The second half is, is a lot more of, of stuff this that is Otis original, is writing. And I think that's a little of where the disconnect comes from in that Otis was not quite there yet with his own songwriting. And so devoting essentially the second half of this album to his songs, I think takes away a little bit. I just I don't think the second half of this album yeah. is as strong as the first half of the album. So that always colors the way that I look at this. What do you think of this it. cover of Day Tripper? I'm interested I in I was going to ask that. I don't, I don't like it. I think it's one of, there you I go. It's one See, of the I rare missteps. Yes, and that was exactly. See, it's so funny, Scott. We really are sympathetic in a lot of ways, aren't we? Right? Because that's my thought as well. It's one of the very few covers of his I can think of where it just doesn't work. You know, you can argue about it, a change is going to come. It's still a worthy effort. Day Tripper is interesting because you know you think you're going to love it. It's the Beatles. Day Tri again. The Beatles did Day Tripper as a Reading and a Stax full tribute explicitly. So you're thinking, oh, how could Otis screw this up? It's not terrible, right? It just seems to just be too light. It's a frothy trifle. It doesn't really come together. It doesn't have the focus, certainly, that even the Beatles version of Day Tripper was probably their least focused single. Like we're talking about Beatles standard here, right? It's still great, but it's probably like their least worthy of that mid-60s era, I'd say. Uh, and so I think Otis is, is just, you know, it's just one of the very few he's ever done that I say was an, a complete win. <laughs> I feel similarly. It does, it certainly doesn't hit quite the way satisfaction does. Um, you mentioned uh, fa 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 the sad song. I love that though. I love that song. <laughs> that one is yeah, it's it's uh, also kind of um, it's a light I mean, song. It's a very trifle. But oh gosh, listen to him talking to his horns, yeah. man. That's now you just, now your turn. Fa 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 <laughs> talking to the horns, and then he's talking. There's this trick at the end. I laugh every time because it makes me smile. It's so great. He talks to the audience because he's expecting you listening to this 45 to be singing along as well. And he's right. Yeah. The 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 biggest highlight probably from the first half here is try a little tenderness. Yeah, uh, of course. You know, it, it works really well live. But everything we just said about coffee and cigarettes or, or cigarettes and coffee, rather, and, and a bunch of these other ballads, you could say about that song, too. It's a cover, but it's just like a lover is that stuff.
thought of that song as anything but an Otis song. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, if there are, I know there are other covers of him, including Mr. Bolton's, I believe. But it's an Otis Redding song forever. You might as well have written it. I, I, I just, I have to make sure. Are you confusing "Try a Little Tenderness" with "Time, Time Love, Love and, and Tenderness"? tenderness? Oh, or did no. he do I, them both? I assumed he did "Try a Little Tenderness" too. Did I'm not, not sure. I'm not a big enough Bolton fan. I do he not celebrate like his catalog. Of, you know what? I think Scott, he, frankly, he seems like the kind of. Ass- <laughs> Yeah, I think the other version of this that I can think of is uh, Three Dog Night. Uh, oh, I'm actually not familiar with that one. I mean, I don't think it's like, I'm not telling you to rush out and listen to it. It sounds exactly how you would expect it to sound, but uh, they had some success with it, I think. Um, and, and, you know, the rest of this record, I do think Lover's Prayer is, uh, it's not quite on the level of the great ballads, but it'll be on those collections that you get sometimes, and it's worth, you know, that's it's good. It's worth that. What do you think of this Tennessee Waltz? Well, you said it's a Sam Cooke cover, essentially. Yeah, I think I, it's, pretty, it's okay. I don't love it. It's not. It it yeah. wouldn't make my. You know, it's not going to make my top five. It wouldn't make my top. You know, twenty or thirty either. But it's not like it's bad. Um, lots of people have covered that song, both you know, but because of Sam Cooke and other and other people. Right. Um, I don't think it's like one of the great interpretations of that song, but it's not bad. And guys, I mean, Scott, do you have any final thoughts on this one? The one song we have not mentioned yet that I do want to uh, say or, or at least bring up is "I'm Sick Y'all," which is on the on the front <laughs> side of the record. That one. is one of the, the dirtiest, funkiest, deep grooves that they get into on this album. Uh, I love those little organ slides from Booker T. Uh, that is a real highlight of uh, the first side of the album. I'm trying to think about how we talk about what is, uh, I guess, a time-honored soul and R&B tradition. Folks, it wouldn't be an R&B or a soul episode if we didn't have a duets album, would it? I mean, this this is you know Motown infamous for them. Every single crossover, you Marvel Universe crossover you could imagine <laughs> on the Motown label, they tried it, right? You know, like the Supremes meet the Four Tops. I'm sure they they did one of those. Uh, they did a bunch of them on Stax Vault too. And uh, Otis did one, and this is actually the last album that he released in his lifetime. And the reason for that is he actually he would go and he would he'd do touring in the summer, and then he had to have vocal cord surgery. So it was you know it's just pretty happenstance that King and Queen, the record he recorded with Carla Thomas. Now, um, this is the last thing that came out in his life. Carla Thomas, just who is that? Carla Thomas is the daughter of Rufus Thomas, who's another one of those Memphis greats who's stacks guy he did walking the dog which the rolling stones covered and otis himself covered and i kind of think that the stones probably got their version from otis's version although knowing them it's entirely possible they got it from the original um but carla's his daughter and uh boy she's a sassy lady isn't she 
what a wonderful voice this is. Mm-hmm. You know, the, they say, I have no idea if this is true, but the word I've heard is that Otis and Carla were never together in the studio when this was being recorded. And I don't, for the life of me, understand how that could possibly be true. Because they sound like they're just talking back and forth to each other, like they're having arguments. Like these, Not only are they having arguments, but they're having the same damn argument they've had a thousand times before. This is like an album that's almost like a fun, sassy, body lover's quarrel. And that's the way to think about it. You know, it's just kind of like light fun. And then every now and then it spits up a hilarious gem like Tramp. Tramp. What you call me? Tramp. You You don't wear continental clothes or Stetson hats. But I tell you one doggone thing. It makes me feel good to know one thing. I know I'm a Cropper himself walks in the room and tells me they were not in the studio together. I will not believe that. If you listen to Tramp and the way they're going back and forth, yes. it just is implausible that they weren't. I mean, you know, she keeps she uses his name over and over again in that song. You know, Otis, you're, you're just Otis, a Tramp Otis. Otis. And, he, and yeah, and then there's other points where he's talking to Carla over and over and over again. It just seems implausible that they weren't together. Or uh, the the moment in that song, it's right near the beginning when. Otis makes the statement, I, I know I'm a lover. And Carla comes back and, and says, matter of opinion. That's right. To get that, to get that, that right. I, I don't know how. Yeah, he's got the comedic timing of a genius or they had to be there. I don't know how, because it sounds so natural. That's the thing. That's the fun about this album. I think we all agree. There's a lot of these, a lot of the covers here. Maybe a little bit more kind of like, you know, it, it takes two. I don't need to hear another version of that. I never liked the original one with uh, Marvin Gaye, honestly. Well, who's the person? Kim, Kim something Weston. or another? Kim Weston. Kim Weston. Yeah. That's it. I never loved it that much. Uh, but then there's stuff like Ooh Carla, Ooh Otis, which is basically, again, how could they not have been there? How could they not have been there for that song? Or like on Knock on Wood, which is, again, you know, Eddie's is probably the you know, the killer one. But I do love hearing Otis, you know, just like he's always like, gotta, 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 my, my, my. He's like, I gotta knock, 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 knock on wood.
it's a lot of fun. This is a fun album, but it isn't one of his major staples. Unstoppable backbeat from Al Jackson on Knock on Wood. He's just Amazing. playing out of his mind. The one I wanted to mention is uh, going to, to uh, Jeff's point about uh, having these same arguments over and over again. You're just sort of in the room. Tell it like it is. Yeah. Sounds like you are entering in the middle of a conversation. You sort of drift in. And at the end, you drift out and we catch this snippet of this conversation between Otis and Carla. And the magic of Tell It Like It Is, is that the music somehow reinforces that feel. That feel like you're just dipping in to a conversation and at the end, you remove yourself. With that, that argument, or, you know, the, the, the conversation is going to keep going. That's a, that's a magic part of this album. I like that one. I, yeah, I think that one's successful. The, Tramp is the if you're going to listen to one here though, I think it's Tramp. Uh, For sure. You know, it's a really funky song. It's and um, that one, Knock on Wood. You know, the, so what's the difference between the original Knock on Wood uh, by Eddie Floyd and this? Well, this is looser. It's kind of funkier. It's rustier. It's right, all yeah, of yeah. that stuff. Floyd is a lot crisper in general. He's yeah. got more like pep and speed to him. It's yeah. a, it's a little more produced too. And uh, and so I would say, like, this is, you know, this is Carla, uh, Rufus's daughter. Rufus is also a Stax artist, as you mentioned. He was kind of the, the you know, sort of the old man around there from from uh, my recollection of, of uh, hearing the stories about it. And so it's kind of, you know, it's sort of a family album. I mean, it's all these people getting together and doing this stuff. And so they're, they are looser. That You know, It Takes Two is not as tight as the Motown version. None of these songs are like that. Um, I love the song "Are You Lonely for Me, Baby." Uh, there's a great version of that on uh, on the Greg Allman tour album. I don't think we mentioned that on the last uh, episode I did with you guys, but that's a good song. I don't think this is the greatest version of it. I, I, I like that juxtaposition between Carla going high and really staying sort of on on note, on tone, and Otis way down low doing that that Otis thing he does. Yeah, underneath, yeah. underneath Carla, that's fun. The song fits the album, so I'm, I'm I want to mention it because I think it's great and it's not bad, uh, but it's not my favorite version of that great song I, I do think that the sam cook cover on this uh album is one of the better songs on the album bring it on home to me i like that one um i like their version of it uh, other than that you know we've i think we've said what i have to say about this record there's nothing wrong with it it's enjoyable uh but it's not otis as an artist in the same way you know it's funny how the contours of otis's career are actually just coming together perfectly you know to bring us to like the other aspect of, of reading that i've really really wanted to discuss on this show and i know andrew has as well because we talked about it in advance this is the period right after this um uh he goes out on the road and this is the, the best and happiest moment this is the peak the zenith 
Uh, because what happens? Well, you know, first thing he does is he goes out on a tour in Europe, does the Stax Volt tour. And I think the story is like, you know, when they landed in London, the Beatles had a limousine sent for him, waiting for him at the airport. They were so excited for him to be there. Because like everybody, every, every, imagine all those British, like, you know, R&B kids, the small faces, the stones, to see Otis Redding and the Stax people coming and playing a review. Must have been the thrill of their lives, right? And you get that show. Uh, get the record that's released from it, which is, I think it comes from March of 1967. And it's just called Live in Europe. And it's a really solid set, but I would ironically say that of the three kind of major recorded concerts or like, you know, the sources that you draw on for live Otis Redding, we have so few documents, sadly. I'd say this is actually the weakest of the three, but that doesn't mean it still isn't a lot of fun. And it kind of brings us to like when I'm talking about the to live Otis in general and what made this guy such a riveting performer on stage. I think I actually prefer this to the Whiskey A Go Go. Um, you do? Yeah. I, I think so because the the band is different. So you don't have right. the 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 um, his touring band, right? Yeah, right. The Booker T and the MGs and and those guys didn't really want to tour, um, and so they early, I think, fairly early in their days as the house band, kind of said, "Well, we're going to stay here and record, and you guys have other people be your road musicians," which isn't an unusual arrangement anyway. Right. Uh, but for these big tours. Um, for this and for Monterey, you get them out there, and it is a difference maker. And you watch the videos, and you see uh, Otis looking over to, to Steve Cropper. You see Duck Dunn, who was probably—I think this is—I think this is true. He's probably the most talented musician in the group in terms of just how you know how proficient he was at his instrument. Right. Um, it doesn't make sense talking about Steve Cropper as anything other than great, but you get my point. <laughs> because uh, Cropper's a feel guitarist, yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. He's he's about finding that incredible kind of some mellow, almost southern, humid groove. But you get and, and, yeah. and getting that that thickness, but also grace and delicacy out of it. But yeah, it's not a flash sound. And in fact, you don't want it to be. You just want to hear those really sweet kind of like you know, almost. Yeah, it's like soul food, the way yeah. he plays those licks. You know, it's just, you just want to have more. Listen. I'm a man full grown man. You got me eating from the tip of your hand. I don't mind eating long as you feed me. Good love and good old sympathy. get that on the live stuff too i mean the, the live it really translates i mean it's different from the, the studio stuff but maybe because of the rawness of their recordings you do get really good uh representation of of the music it doesn't diminish by by being live um so i think all all three of these kind of you know notable releases the the whiskey a go-go one which i think is from 66 maybe Yep. Yes, it's yeah. from it's from literally a full year before March of 66 so it captures Otis at a at a, 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 a 
different creative era. And in 67, he's, he's got some more of his pop stuff in there. He's got Day Tripper and Fa 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 on the playlist. But in early 66, it's a much sweatier, kind of a hard soul sound. And I think that's why I prefer it. These are the words that I have to say. Just live about them each and every day. In Monterey is what August or September sixty seven? July. That's July. July. Okay, it's so, July sixty seven, and it is the moment yeah. where oh, I think June or July. I hope I'm not wrong. It's the moment where Otis Redding explodes. This is one of the great stories of rock. Rock legend. You know what? Actually, someone else, Scott. Do you know it? Do you want to tell it? Because I just I could set it up for you if you want. No, go ahead. So what is the Monterey International Pop Festival, people? Well, I mean, if you know your your rock history, you know it was the first of the big ones, right? This sort of thing, I guess, culminates in Woodstock and it ends in horror with Altamont. Um, and of course, there'd be festivals throughout the 70s, but of like the early foundational legends, it begins with Monterey in the middle of the summer of love. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band has been released. The Beatles aren't touring, but Paul McCartney's actually flown out to the West Coast. He's the MC and his sponsor. He's on the scene. You know, various Rolling Stones are wandering in and about the crowd. The Beach Boys are hiding because Brian Wilson's still living in a sandbox. It was a <laughs> disgrace. Everybody who's anybody is playing there, from the birds and the mamas and the papas to uh, a band you might have heard of called The Who, and another guy who was about to uh, make a name for himself on this stage named Jimi Hendrix. This is Jimi Hendrix's American coming out party. But for my money, my friends, the man who won Monterey was not Jimi Hendrix, even though you can go listen to that set and it does a fine job with it. And it certainly was, you know, like a godsend for his career. The man who killed Monterey was Otis Redding. Otis Redding became a mass murderer on that day, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm sad to announce because he slayed about 10,000 white kids from California who had never seen anything like this before he went out there to a rock audience playing hard soul music stomped the floor for 25 minutes and left them all with their heads spinning and their clothes on backwards it's a great set it's an epical moment and it's obviously just the wonderful zenith of his career at this moment everybody heard of him and said nothing can stop this man because this man is going to take over the world if he goes national if you want to read the
haven't heard it, it doesn't take long to hear it. It's not 20, a long 20, set. 29 minutes right? say it's, it's five songs. a long set. You can actually hear him playing with the audience in a, in, in a good way, right? He, he's making sure that they're, uh, they're, they're shouting back at him in the, in, in, when he does shake. Uh, after that first song, he already has them eating out of his hand. And, and you do something like, uh, I've been loving you too long, that's the first one where he, he he's bringing them over to, to his side of stuff, right? He, he's pleading with them, and then he goes into that big high note. There were times. Yeah. So then the audience goes, whoa, audience what goes are we nuts. even hearing? And, and you, you, can, you can see the moment or hear the moment when the audience sort of gives themselves over to him, and that lasts yeah. for the rest of that set. It's a, it's a, it's a powerful performer-audience uh, relationship. And that, that moment is really captured uh, on this audio. Any thoughts on Monterey? Do you, I assume you prefer the uh, the European one to the Monterey set I, because it's longer, if nothing else. Um, I'm not sure. I do. I I think uh, I pref- I do prefer both of these to the to the. Listen, you should get whiskey. both. They're both great. They're both great. Okay, get it all. Get yeah. it all in my. That's right. There's nothing stopping you from getting it all. I think the European one. I the, the one thing about that one is it has my girl, and I prefer the live version of that to the studio version by Otis. You were talking about this earlier, yeah. Yeah. I so agree. I think I think that's one thing to attract you to the European one. I mean, for some reason, you can only have one of these things. Like maybe somebody artificially limited you to picking two of Otis's <laughs> records at the end of. Yeah. Uh, well, who do that? What kind of idiot? But the Monterey stuff is great. You're right. The the liveliness with the audience is really really good. Um, he even does this thing like we're all about love, right? Like sort yeah, of like you guys yeah. are the hippies, right? You guys are the, the people love I've been crowd, about. right? Yeah. That's what he called them, the love crowd. <laughs> yeah. So that's all that's all really fun, and I do think that the version of Satisfaction there is awesome. Uh, and uh, and then you get this live try a little tenderness, which is again that's that's the kind of thing that very few people who ever lived could pull off. It's, it's an amazing thing, and this, as I said, is just. Everything's coming up, Otis. All right, he's you know putting out great work. The, the catalog is there. He's starting to move into interesting new creative directions. He has to take some time off from touring, though. However, because he has a medical issue. We talked about how did the guy we talk of these arms of mine. He sounds so youthful, even you know even though he's still Otis. And then now he's got that really husky, husky voice. Well, guess what? You sing like that all the time every night, you're going to shoot your vocal cords out too. So he had polyps on his vocal cords. This happens to singers, especially people who are leaving it all on the stage as well as their entire body weight's worth of sweat every night when they're performing. So he had to get surgery, polyp surgery. Took him out of commission for the second half of 1967, most of it. But then once he got back up on his feet, he went into the recording studio, did a bunch of sessions over about a two-week period or something like that, put a lot of great music down on tape, and then he said, well, we're going to figure out what we're going to do with this. Released one single, I believe, at the time. Um, Then he went out on tour. And it was just, you know, the normal touring schedule. He'd even gotten himself a private plane because, you know, his records had sold. He's making money. He was living a good life, a happy family man. He had his own private jet. He kept him where he needed to be from gig to gig. He plays a show in Cleveland, I believe, in December of 1967. Finishes up that night. Um, gets on the phone with his wife, calls, and says, hey, what's up? I love you. Tell the kids I said hi. Hangs up the phone, gets into his airplane. And that's the end of Otis Redding's life because that airplane crashed into Lake Monona in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, killing him and almost everybody on board. There was one survivor who was just lucky as hell, somehow managed to not drown. Um, And everyone else died in what I consider to be to this day. And I've thought a long time about this. The single greatest loss 
for modern musical history there ever has been. I don't think there's any loss that ranks higher than Otis Redding's completely random and, you know, unfair death, just plain accident. This career is cut short right there at that time, uh, right when he seemed to be moving on to a completely different level, exploring new sounds, refining what he'd already learned, and we're never going to know what could have happened. We're never going to know. But all we do know is, is, is those last few recordings that he left with us before he went. I'm so sad about this. I'm getting sad just talking about it right now because it's still cosmically unfair. Like, think about all the evil people that are in rock. Like, couldn't one of the Rolling Stones maybe? I don't know. <laughs> it's like, why, why is it Otis Redding who had to go like this? All we have are those last few recordings. And, of course, the, the first of them is to this day. And, of course, it became this because of his death. Uh, the most famous Otis Redding song of all time, and that's Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. Does somebody want to talk about this song and why it's so different and, and represents such a change from what he'd been doing before? Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll in And then I'll watch them roll away again Yeah Sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time Yeah, I mean, there and there are a few other examples uh, where you can kind of find hints towards this direction, but so sonically, it's a really different song. I mean, it winds up having a lot of the same instrumentation that other stuff would. But the dominant uh, accompanying instrument here is an acoustic guitar. That's different. You know, there, there are acoustic guitars in other recordings of his earlier. I'm going to talk about at least a little bit of it when we get to the end. And we're kind of do, doing the uh, what to listen to stuff. But uh, that's it's a really different deal. And evidently, if I remember right, he himself was playing guitar a lot at the time. They say he's listening to a lot of, just, lot of uh, Sergeant Pepper, I think. And yeah. and he's kind of just he's starting to think about his music in an, in a different way, and so you get a, a a song that is is pretty different. I wouldn't really say like you know this kind of plaintive uh, plaintive going and uh, longing for home, but also kind of you know uh, finding meaning and you know staring out at the water and listening to seagulls, which on the outtakes you can hear mimicking. Um, I don't think that's exactly. It's not like you can't find. Uh, parallels in, in earlier songs, but it does just kind of seem to be a move towards um, kind of a late 60s. I mean, you could almost, you could imagine a man who wrote this song, you know, also writing a Buffalo Springfield song or something. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, actually, Andrew. That's a, it does sound like it could be kind of like a Steve Stills almost sort of a thing. Look like nothing's gonna change Everything still remains the same what ten people tell me to do So I guess I'll remain the same Sitting here resting my bones And this loneliness won't leave me alone Listen, two thousand miles I roam Just to make this dock my home 
now I'm just gonna sit at the dock of a bay Watching the tide roll away Ooh, I'm sitting on the dock of a bay Wasting time Yeah, so it's the, and I think that's why it really kind of takes off. And sometimes you'll see people say like, "Oh, this was Otis's nod towards Northern Soul," or something like that. I I don't know. I think that's probably reading too much into this one song because right. we have other material from the time, and it's not. I don't think Otis was saying like, "I'm done with all the other stuff I've been doing." No, um, not at all. But this was, you know, this this and then songs that we're going to talk about that come out on the next record. Uh, or two do indicate that his music was maturing into something that I don't think there is a comp for. I don't think anyone else right. had really gone where he appeared to be heading. And you talk about this being like maybe the greatest tragedy of all these young deaths. And we can all sit here and name a dozen people who died in their twenties. Um, you know, for me, the, the hit list would be Hank Williams and Dwayne Allman, right. you know, whatever other people would mention Janis Joplin or, you know, of course, Jimi Hendrix Sam Cooke himself, I think, was like 32, so a little older than that, but still in his prime, whatever. One of the things that makes you think that Otis is is one of the real, you know, uh, tragedies in terms of what he was producing is so many people uh, have careers that last five years, like Otis's did, and then after that, they might as well have not lasted any longer because they just weren't very good. You Weezer, know, for example. Yeah, sure, that's right. Yeah. I promised we wouldn't make another Weezer reference on this show, and I lied. But how many how many artists are really good for more than five years? Very few. And usually if you make this point to somebody who's never thought about it before, they're like, well, the Rolling Stones. You're like, right, exactly. That's my point. That's what I'm telling you is that you have to be in the Rolling Stones to have a you sustainable have a career of a couple that, of decades. Yeah. But Otis was clearly ready to be doing something uh, to take his music creatively into a new direction. Uh, or it's not a new, I don't know. I, again, I don't want to say like Otis was kind of waking up to what he wanted to be or something. I don't think that's what was going on so much as just, he still had a lot in the tank in terms of creativity yeah. and, you know, ways of exploring what you can do with American pop music. And I mentioned earlier, you know, he was unafraid to be crossing these lines in his music. And so this was just another line to cross another, uh, another avenue to explore. I don't think it was going to be. And I think some of the, you know, the documents we have and music we have, it wasn't going to be some sort of massive sound shift, career shift. It was just something else, something new. That almost makes it worse because you, you can't even perhaps imagine or predict. You can't predict it. He, you, was, he, right. was, he was restless. He could have gone anywhere. Who knows? Yeah, you can't predict where he might have gone in, in the coming years and uh, with this as a sort of a first step. Before There's also some sad cosmic irony that you know that sitting on the dock of the bay is like the song that he's most famous for. It's the end of his career because of that wistful, contemplative nature of the song. Like you know, if it had been like you know, uh, you know, another like barn burner, like I can't turn you loose, it wouldn't have had the same resonance yeah. as you know, sort of a guy sort of, sort of putting sunsetting, pondering life, mortality, things he like that. Whistle on a tune. I mean, yeah. to have the sunset of your life be that song too. Jeez, it's like so resonant, you know. And you do get this line about I can't do what ten people tell me to do. That probably did have something to do with how his career is really taking off. He's selling more records. Aretha's selling records for him, and and you know he's become a commodity. Uh, and that I do think that that's probably that is a little bit new for him to, to kind of reflect yeah. like that. But, you know, I remember when I was 21 and when I was 26 and I would have written different lyrics, too. 
Um, I'll tell my quick Dock of the Bay story here. Oh yeah, so no, we go, have this is... really kind of like we've had these really kind of touching and, and yeah, thoughtful no. things. Scott, why don't you ruin the moment by telling us what your first memory was? Now you have me. Yeah, so uh, I, <laughs> I I curse myself because <laughs> I can't listen to Dock of the Bay, which is you know this amazing song. I can't hear it without hearing the commercial from 1987. There used to be, I don't think it's around anymore even, a root beer company hires root beer. I remember this commercial too. And I remember it. when you sent it to me, I like I got a, like a goose bump, like a cold chill. Yeah. Like, oh no, I know this and I know why I know this too. I'm almost certain it's the first time I, well, first time I remember hearing Doc of the Bay, but you know, Otis Redding's power of attorney, whoever had the rights to his music, sold Doc of the Bay to Hires Root Beer, and Hires had them rewrite the lyrics so that the song ended up, ended up being sitting at the Dock of the Bay, sitting on the Dock of the Bay, sipping Hires, and about how great of a soft drink it is, and that oh. it's the sit-down soft drink, I think was the tagline on it. So every time <laughs> I can't... Such a 1987 <laughs> line! I know, I, I cannot... Was I Orson Welles in this commercial? No. Okay. Uh, I just can't hear Dock of the Bay without hearing and thinking about drinking Hires root beer, even though it's impossible <laughs> these days. It's, I don't want to say it's ruined the song, no, no, but it, it, is, it, is, it is never going to be divorced in my mind from, and, and I'm also not one to say don't sell your music, don't, don't make money off your music, anything like that at all, but this one just in particular, I, can't, I cannot divorce it from my mind. Yeah, particularly not, <laughs> not when you're Zelma Redding and you were widowed at like 25 years old or something. Right, you should right. sell that music. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Scott, but you for for you personally, better or worse than Revolution being used in a Nike ad? Same uh, time, actually. I think it's actually worse. Yeah, I agree, actually. I think it's worse. But, you know, here's the irony about Doc of the Bay. This is, of course, you know, his, he went to number one. It was a number one hit single. He was his only number one hit single, obviously. Um, and the album that was posthumously released, the first, what happened, boy, it was strange. Staxfold found out after Otis died that they did not actually own the rights to his masters. No, those were indeed owned by Atlantic Records, which had a very interesting and complicated distribution deal with Stax that I don't want to get into. Basically, Stax being a small Memphis label wanted to get national exposure in this part of the collateral they put up. Uh, well, Atlantic had the rights. Now that Otis is famous and dead, unfortunately, uh, Atlantic decided to release the remainder of his sessions. And these come out posthumously in a series of albums. The first one is Dock of the Bay, and this comes out like right at the beginning of 68, I think. Um, ironically enough, I would say there's no such thing as a bad Otis Redding album. Not one. I mean, but this is, to my mind, the weakest of them all. And the only reason I'd say that is simply because it, it's the only one, the only uh, Reading album that, for mysterious reasons to me, actually recycles material from other records that you can get on other albums. And so it's a little bit of, I've heard some of this already. But also, I don't know, actually, if the uh, the, the original tunes or, or the ones that haven't been repeated have that much focus. Uh, I remember I mentioned earlier, uh, I, uh, there was one song in Otis Redding's discography that had strings. Yeah. Now, unless my ears deceive me, it's I love you more than words can say. All right. And I think it's an unsuccessful experiment. He doesn't really sound quite right with that sort of sweetness. It's not a disaster. It's just undistinguished. But, um, you know, I actually don't think this is... I think this is the weakest of all the Otis Redding albums, and I mean, I include these posthumous ones as well. I don't know if I'm right or wrong, though. I don't think it's as bad as the last one, uh, Tell the Truth. But it is disjointed in a way that 
like and we're not talking bad by the way yeah. right, 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 very right, fun writing on a curve uh but it is disjointed in a way that like even the immortal um otis redding which was which would come next is not um i think there's actually some good stuff on here i, I know some of these are 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 brought back from earlier times, and I don't have the exact timeline in my in my head. But I well, Tramp they recycle right, Tramp from is the old, King and old, Queen album, and then, then there's Trouble. an alternate version of Old Man Trouble, and then, then nobody yep. knows you when you're down and out from the solo album. Is 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 Let Me Come On Home new? To I can't this remember off the top of my head right now. The reason I ask is because I think it is new. It's it's a song that makes me think of two things. One is if he was taking some of that stuff that he that he found. At Monterey, you know that interaction with the audience, sort of the, the more rock audience, and it also makes me think of a Billy Preston song. And Billy Preston, you know, would have this, this sort of crossover success, not just in the soul R and B categories, but over into the pop charts as well. And that that Let Me Come Home has a very sort of funky feel to it. Cropper has wonderful licks on that song. It's a it's an it's an Otis and Booker T song that they wrote together. It has a heavier feel to it though, and it. It sort of again makes me think of an, another direction that that might be uh, might have been possible in in the future for him. It's a pretty good song. I mean, come at the little. First of all, it's a play on the Cupid song, Sam Cooke. Right, right, right. right. But yeah. don't mess with Cupid because Cupid, he's not stupid. I mean, it's silly. It's a silly throwaway. They're just riffing on the old classic. But you're right. You can't deny the energy. Now, the other thing to add about that song is it's got this guitar intro that uh, does not, it doesn't sound like a normal kind of stacks right. thing. And I don't know what to say about that because it's Steve Cropper co right? It's Steve Cropper playing the guitar. Uh, but that's kind of interesting. It's almost like a, a, a futuristic sounding for the time, right? It sounds it sounds like it would fit more on like a Spinner's record or something. I mean, actually, you know, ironically enough, my favorite non-sitting on the dock of the bay uh, <laughs> song on this record is actually the Silly Dance Craze one. Because, I mean, I, love, I, I like Chubby Checkers as a kid. Is everyone else like me? Like when we were all square in the '80s, like, like the only thing you were allowed to listen to in, in like you know your elementary school class was inoffensive '50s pop music. So everyone listened to like do the twist and stuff like that. Chubby well, Checkers. For, well, that's, what, was... that's what we did in Potomac, Maryland, my friend. And so I've always had a, a, a fondness for stuff like doing the mashed potato, and in this case, the Hucklebuck. <laughs> Which was a big dance craze, right? And apparently it was so much more salacious than we think of it these days. Now it's just like a mildly funny thing. This song's been actually covered to death by everyone. I think my favorite actually, the most unlikely version at least, the cover version would be by uh, British post-punk band The Fall, uh, where they changed it to Do the Hassle Schmuck. Um, but I really do like Otis's kind of like jaunty take. But of course, we're talking about a dance tune. It's not a serious lover's plea. It's not some sort of an emotionally penetrating thing. It's a throwaway. Here we come again, y'all. 
I think that so to to kind of wrap that album and move to the next one. I think that yeah. probably uh, you know the the. I don't know if it's the folks at Atlantic. I mean, I think Cropper gets uh, producing credit on on all of this last this last round or a lot of it. So I don't know who to sort of blame for missing the fact that Dock of the Bay could have been a much better record by just using other stuff that they that Otis had recorded in the same you know couple of weeks I think in late '67. Oh, I have thoughts about that, my friend. Okay, we'll talk. But yeah, cool. Well, so Immortal is the is the first posh. So you know he. He second goes, one right after this right? right so he goes to number one with dock of the bay and, and obviously you have to keep putting this stuff out at that point right you've got something here that right. you didn't even know you had if you're and, stack slash atlantic right and just to set it up for you andrew you might think after having already released one posthumous album that like well i guess they put the best of whatever they got in the can on that one and everything that's going to be coming afterwards is going to be dire indeed and here my friend is where you are delightfully wrong take it yeah, that's exactly right. So you start with I've got dreams to remember on Immortal. And that is I first of all, that is like those first those two great albums we talked about from uh the mid sixties, uh Otis Blue and the Soul album. It starts with a ballad, not exactly how you would expect uh, an out al- you know, usually records start with something really catchy, but it starts with a ballad. I think one of the best of these twelve eight ballads that he had written uh, it feels like a thing Otis Redding would have done too, which is what I like about it. it. It feels like an integrity thing instead of like a big poppy upbeat thing. Give us some hard burning soul, and it's a perfect start. Yeah, it does make sense. It's obviously a, a form of music that he really liked, and this one hits those highs that we talked about before. All the all these slow uh, uh, ballads that we've already mentioned, "Dreams to Remember," which is not released at the first opportunity, is as good as those were. I know you say it. Just a friend, but I saw him kiss you again and again. These eyes of mine, they don't fool me. Why did he hold you so tenderly? I've got dreams to remember. Listen, honey, I've got dreams, rough dreams. get these funky songs um, that that come a little bit later that I, this is what when I say like the direction I think his music was kind of going I'm talking about nobody's fault but mine and hard to handle these are songs that no one else hard to handle. Had, Jesus okay yeah I mean no one else to this point had written a song like those songs and I don't you know I, I don't know what to say about that except you know this is Otis the su- sui generous uh, uh, Otis Redding that we talked about before where he was fine. He just found kind of notes that other people didn't. And, and these two songs, I think are a great example of where that might have gone into the late sixties and seventies before Jeff talks about hard to handle, which I know he's waiting to do. I wanted to mention the, another thing that we don't get a chance to fully explore is the songwriting partnership between Otis Redding and Steve Cropper. Yeah. And if I look at these post uh, posthumous releases, immortal and even onto love man. And I think even the best song on tell the truth, maybe, are Cropper Redding co-writes. And so finding where that musical relationship would have gone 
in the coming years is something else that we missed out on. And we only have these little fragments, not fragments of songs, but fragments of perhaps the partnership that could have been released on these albums here. I mean, it, it just blows my mind that a song like Hard to Handle was, a, first of all, a posthumous release, an original, and that it was held back for the second album they did afterwards. I have this thought in my mind, like, if Otis had lived, what would that next album have been like? You can take the songs. With these four albums, you go sitting on the dock of the band, nobody's fault but mine, Hard to Handle. You know, you, you take all of the best from these records, and you would put together an album that could... I would argue literally would have been the greatest single soul album ever released. Maybe in any era, but certainly the 60s. Baby, here I am, I'm a man on the scene. I can give you what you want, but you got to go home with me. I forgot some good old love, and then I got some in store. When I get through throwing it on you, you got to come back for more. Boys and things will come by the dozen That ain't nothing but drugstore loving Dirty little thing, let me like to count Cause mama, I'm so hard to handle now, yes around Action, speech, light of the word And I'm a man with a great experience I know you got you another man But I can love you better than him Take my hand, don't be afraid I wanna... And I think the immortal Otis Redding Still does a good job because you get a song like Hard to Handle. I, You know, where did you guys first hear this? I know Scott's answer is going to be the Black Crows, right? You heard it there first, right? Yes. Yes, sir. And I know it's your favorite Black Crows cover tune. It's one that Not you, even close. You constantly talk about how much you love it. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. And I'll just say this very quickly. Hard to Handle, I, I, I told this on the Black Crows episode, I didn't like hard to handle when it came out and so i was predisposed not to like the black black crow that's how great they were that they overcame my objection but i think one of the reasons i don't like that hard to handle is if you know the story of it they weren't otis redding fans necessarily they didn't like the song necessarily it was i think either rick Rick, Rick rubin or george draculius who said we should do a cover and you guys are both from georgia and why don't you do an otis redding song and that's essentially how Hard to Handle came in. You know, Hard to Handle, the solo's played by Brendan O'Brien. It's not even played by a member of the band. There's all these little reasons that I don't love the Crows version of Hard to Handle. But most of all, probably because the uh, the sincerity that Otis Redding brought to all of his music is missing from the Crows version because they didn't really feel it. They, you yeah. know, It wasn't necessarily, it's going to be a smash hit, but it was a, hey, you guys should do this song because you're both from Georgia, which is not the best reason to do a song it worked out well for everybody involved but that's the flaw i see in that in that cover well the way i first heard hard to handle was from a a bunch of guys who were doing it for nothing but love and that's the grateful dead that's actually how i first came to hard to handle i heard a a 1971 live version of it and of course this is telling because the dead shared a bill with otis at monterey in july of 67 right and then he died and within a year you know, after because so, so hard to handle comes out in June of '68, right? By April 1969, the Dead are playing hard to handle, and by the way, those early versions are terrible because Jerry is trying <laughs> to play like slide guitar, bottleneck slide, and he has no idea what the hell he's doing. It's funny stuff. By 1971, they've been playing it for three years, and those final versions are some of the most explosive, orgiastic guitar workouts you've ever heard in your life. Like things where like you know you can see fireworks going off as. Jerry and Pigpen and all those guys literally are 
paying tribute to Otis Redding, the sweat, the fault, the hard work for seven minutes. And the thing is, I thought nothing could ever top that. And then I went back and I finally heard Otis's original version. And I was like, I was wrong again. Otis's is the best. It's amazing, again, how it's just effortlessly a new style of funk. You know, just, you, that, that, that riff is indelible. That do-do-do-do-do-do. And the way the horns just push punch they're aggressive this is a song of braggadocio a mama i'm sure hard to handle now bet you yes i am and i again there could have been 15 more songs like this but we have to settle for something like nobody's fault but mine which i agree with andrew i think that that's a fantastic highlight i think it may be a single funkiest track ever it's got those strutting, loping lines. And again, I'd listen to this. It's like, yeah, it's Southern soul meets urban strut is the way I would characterize it. And I find myself wondering why Otis didn't do more of that style. What will I do tomorrow? Burden down and suffer with my sorrows. But crying ain't gonna help me now. I made a mistake anyhow. It ain't nobody's fault but my Also might even argue that okay, that man. One criticism of this album is that happy song is transparently a rewrite of sad song, <laughs> and it's it's very cheap, right? I mean, like literally, it's the same kind of a chorus, it's the same premise, but again, it's a little slower and it's a little tougher. It's more stripped down compared to the poppier play of the other one. Um, ironically, because now this is the happy song. Uh, I think the one thing I do want to say is that I do like think about it. I think that's one of my favorite Otis ballads of all time, secretly. Everyone else knows Try a Little Tenderness, and of course that's his sort of sine qua non torch song, but this one destroys me every single time. Yeah, that was good. I like the happy song. I, uh, I'm, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not bad, but uh, it's just like, it's like, it's like you're going, dude, you're copying yourself here. Yeah, you know? but he had to know that. I mean, I guess that's, you know. That's the uh, joke. It's almost yeah, why it's a joke. It, right? Isn't there a, a Paul McCartney thing where uh, he wrote a song, and I think I don't remember. I don't remember when they told this story, but he wrote a song and somebody said, "Well, doesn't that sound a little bit like?" Uh, I can't remember. I think like you know, 
when I'm 64 or something. He's like, yeah, but can I do that? Isn't it okay if my songs sound like when I'm 64? Yeah, anyway. It's, like, I, you know, it's not illegal if I do this to myself. Yeah, yeah. it's not like, it, you know, if you told me like this sounds like the Beach Boys, you're like, oh, yeah, maybe this wasn't my most creative moment. But anyway, the, the only other thing I want to mention here is that Amen, which, you know, it's not like yeah. that's a song that I like, you know, turn up in the car uh, when I play this record. But that was actually a pretty big hit for him. And I think it related to... Uh, Sidney Poitier singing it in The Lilies of the Field, I think, or Lilies of the Valley, whatever. I can't remember now which translation they use for that movie, but the the Sidney Poitier movie, I think he sings it, and that I don't remember which direction this flows, but I think that that did have something to do with that song being a hit, because otherwise it's just a really stripped-down gospel song that wouldn't have been an obvious radio hit. Amen, amen, amen. I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine Let it shine Let it shine To show my Love. One thing my pappy used to say, he said that even in my own song, I said, what, Dad? I mean, it's beautiful. Well, yeah, his voice is really what takes it over. It's not obvious pop. And so at this point, it's 1969. Otis has been gone for two years, and we are now three albums into like you know, just releasing what was left in the vault. You'd think it, we'd be getting on to Dire Straits, and, and yet, uh, this is just amazing. This is what I mean when okay, I say Otis Redding's discography is something of a miracle in its density and its quality. Love Man, um, I think this is just a fantastic album as well. It's a much more up-tempo, upbeat, peppy-poppy album, but that's great, all right? This because this this has a little bit more uh, rough edge to it. it it's, it's push. There's a song like, I'm a changed man. How the hell was that song still in the vaults? I mean, imagine what album Otis would have put together if he had just been able to put this all on the same record at once. Those little diving piano crotchets, the trilling horns. its I consider that to be just spectacular pop soul madness. Let me sing it. I'll be the guy to say I think the quality begins to slip here, here? on Love Man. Yeah. Um, I think nine of the 11 tracks are, are Redding songs, Otis songs. And so I look and I think, well, now we're getting to the material, you know, his own material that didn't quite measure up to release on the first two posthumous albums or, or anything previous to that. Not to say there's not good songs here. I agree with that. I think the strengths are in the cover tunes here, not the originals. Yeah, and the other thing is, when I get to this point in the discography, because you know when we prep for these these uh, shows, I'm listening straight through. 
Love Man is the point too, where I say, man, I wish we could see where he actually would have been by this would point. Would be at this there's, time. There's and these would be outtakes. Because Otis was a guy, even though it's all in the soul stacks R&B sort of arena, as we talked about earlier, he's always sort of moving the line, crossing the line, trying something a little different, reinterpreting something in his own very special way. And by Love Man... He would have been so much so far further on by now. This should right. have been part of his eventual bootleg series, volumes one through few, vault yep. outtakes release. And again, this, but yeah, that's the stuff I didn't release, you know. But you know, it's um, not to we'll say there aren't know. good songs here. Uh, uh, I love his cover of Higher and Higher. I, uh, I I feel like this is blasphemy, but I sometimes again it's one I think I I, mean, I take Jackie Wilson in this one and he's evil hand in hand. I love it so much. No, That's you know the, the, like I was saying. Not it's not the same kind of thing, but like I was saying about change is going to come. That that Jackie Wilson performance on that is such a transcendent pop yeah. performance. But I I do like this. I mean, it is kind of it it is so it's different enough, and it's Otis you know Otis's style that that I can see liking it as much, uh, or or at least appreciating it. Appreciating you can't. It you, it is, you, yeah. Listen, when Jackie Wilson sings, I'm in heaven. Okay, I'm in heaven when he smiles. Actually, <laughs> all right. So I'm not gonna take a thing away from him, but I'm yeah. just saying to hear like you know Otis just like dash it off. It feels like almost like they just sort of like had the fun with it in the studios. Like everyone yeah. knows it. it's a standard. Hey, you want to do it? Sure, let's do it. Let's see what we can do. And that's kind of what I love about it. It feels a little casual, but I like the casual nature of it. And that's the cover version of what it, of exactly what I was gonna say about a song like Groovin' Time. So that's a Redding Cropper song that they if they even wrote it i would be almost surprised because it seems like they just did it you know what i mean they just, exactly <laughs> so right. like it wasn't hard for them to be sitting in the studio filling time and write that song out uh right. especially with the mind meld that those two guys had but i you know one thing i'll say that that you know i'm more i'm, I'm much closer to jeff here i i think that this record is like i, I consider this to be a a you know a top quality otis writing record um i don't like it quite as much as immortal but i i still think it's great there's a couple of things on it though that that sort of um, uh, bring me to what you were saying, Scott. So a song like "Direct Me," uh, I think that that was probably not intended to be the final version of that song. Yeah, I think it was, it was like a demo. It you know, they're working their concepts out. There's no horns. The uh, that like descending guitar thing sounds a little sparse. I think it winds up being an awesome track. It is, and it's a Cropper Redding. That's a Cropper Redding song. Absolutely, and it's, exactly. al it's already a good track. But yeah. you're right. What would it have been? I would always like treasure this one, like in the same way that all right, I'll make the Weezer reference now. Like Jamie is a great Weezer song, <laughs> you know. Like so, if that's all that this ever was, I would still think that this is awesome. But I also think it probably wasn't quite realized to the way you know. To it probably didn't quite become the version of that that Otis ultimately wanted that song to be. Ooh, 
by the way, guys, I just want you to know I'm going to sell this episode of the show on Twitter by, by talking about how many times we've referenced it's, Weezer. It's a Weezer-Otis Redding crossover is <laughs> exactly. what it really is. It's like even better than their cover of Africa. And, right? and, and, exactly. I was going to say, and what we've been denied here is Otis singing Africa, which would have been awesome. Oh, my God. <laughs> can you guys imagine? Can you imagine Rivers Cuomo covering an Otis Redding song? Could, could that abomination even exist without the world simply imploding? <laughs> Uh, look, I'm not going to say anything bad about Rivers while he's still my fa- my kid's favorite, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, artist. But no, it, it, sorry anyway, to interrupt. No, it, it, I just think that that kind of it unifies both these perspective, which perspectives, which is this is great, but it also is is kind of great in a. I mean, it is. It's beginning to be a bookend to the to that first couple of records we talked about that are basically right. assembled singles, whatever. It's it's a little more mashed together than Same. even Immortal is. Uh, but it does, it continues that whole, like, oh my gosh, this was getting better, even though it was already great right when it came to an end. Yeah, and I think we can all basically say the same thing about the last album, sort of vault releases. This is it. This is basically all that they had in the vaults. Yeah, I think, like, 20 years later, there would be a nice little kind of a rarity CD, but it's basically alternate takes of Otis writing tracks. Tell the Truth is the name of it. I think it came out in 70, 70. or so. Yep. Yeah, and this is, you know, I mean, I don't want to say scraping the bottom of the barrel because, again, this is kind of like the way I talked about Marvin Gaye. Wouldn't, would you ever mind hearing Marvin Gaye sing to you? I don't really. You know, like, so I don't ever mind hearing Otis, you know, tell me my, 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 and gotta, gotta, gotta and talk about. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming out. But, yeah, this one is not that great. I think there's, like, only one song on here that I really remember, and that's Johnny's Heartbreak. I've always liked that one. The rest of them, you know, I think Tell the Truth is a pretty good cover. I always feel like like did, did Derek and the Dominoes just pull this as they're recording Layla and other assorted love songs? They got the most recent Otis Redding album that just came out. Because remember, they're recording at Atlantic Studios, right? I feel like they just got it. They were like high on cocaine. They listened to Elvis or Otis's version of Tell the Truth, and they decided to record their own version for Derek and the Dominoes. No, Hard to stop, but I'm gonna just tell you this. Mm. If I had to do it, maybe you know I would. I would be a little stone all around if I just thought that it would do me some good. But I don't have no idea. I think those are the only things on the record that stand out to me. Again, you're not going to be offended by it, but this is, you know, this is it. He just, why should we have expected more? He's He's been gone at three years at this point. <laughs> I think it's it's all essentially a cut below, which yeah. you know, a cut a cut rate Otis Redding is still a pretty good Otis Redding, but I I, I think by this I point, agree. the songs are, are, are showing signs that this is essentially all there is, and that this was would be all there is. There's nothing after this. Uh, the one I'll point to is Wholesale Love. I think that's an extremely uh, top-notch vocal performance. He really throws himself into the vocals on Wholesale Love. There's a, uh, a neat chord progression on I Got the Will, those are the two moments that I kind of pick out of, of Tell the Truth. And actually, as Jeff said, the title track is pretty good. Um, but other than that, yeah, kind of cut cut rate, little little below, little below standards. Uh-huh. Yeah, Andrew? I, yeah, no, I don't disagree. I, I, I think that's right. I, I think my favorite is probably Tell the Truth. For some reason, the match game also kind of sticks with me. 
It's interesting. It's a cool right with uh, the, the, the match game. Is a silly pun because you think of, like the match game, like the dating game, like the show. But of course, it's like striking a match. <laughs> the flames of love. Kind of a silly, fun soul trope. Yeah, and it, it's a uh, co-write with uh, Dave from Sam and Dave, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Yeah. Uh, like so many of these others, you know, these guys uh, collaborating, even though they weren't even in the same act or whatever. I forgot to mention two quick things from Love Man. I'm sorry, I just want to go back super briefly. One is that bizarre, yeah, yeah, yeah part on "I'm a Changed Man." Yeah, that's, that's a that's another piece of the whole like where was this going? This was that's exactly really what I mean. I mean. Think about the yeah. album, yeah, yeah. And then the last one is I, I just I don't even know what to say about this except um, the last track on Love Man. Look at that girl, and maybe I don't remember now. Maybe one of the ones on on Tell the Truth has backing singers, hmm. and we talked a bunch about how there yes. isn't a lot of that. And I don't even know who they are. I tried to find this out. Um, there's I, another thing I noticed. There's one song on Love Man that has a harmony vocal, which is even more unique and, in fact, singular in the entire Otis Redding discography, where it seems like Otis is harmonizing with himself as an overdub. Just like a random little experiment. It didn't seem like it really affected the song that much, but I noticed it this time when I was listening carefully. I also noticed that one of the interesting things about that is that a ton of Sam Cooke was done with, like, with Lou Rawls or somebody else singing uh, you know, right. almost a almost like a second lead singer. Uh, but anyway, so you just, yeah, it's just more of the same of this kind of, there's really interesting musical stuff happening here. Otis is going in new directions. The backup singers, I think Carla's probably one of them on, uh, on the watch that girl song. Uh, so it, anyway, that's, that's kind of, you know, again, kind of where we're getting left here is in new stuff is happening. It's really interesting stuff. Well, I mean, that's the thing though. Like, as I said already, Already, I feel so sad when I think about what we lost when Otis Redding, you know, went down. And I guess, you know, I didn't mention this before, but I'm like, I don't, there's something about the moral level that bothers me, too, is, you know, because he was such a good man. He, you know, there was a, I've read a review. I was doing my research, too, Scott. Somebody apparently staged, like, a play, like, you know, like, you know, like, independent theater plays, like, the, the Life of Otis Redding. And the review complained that, like, you know, the only problem with it is, like, when they were singing songs, it was awesome. When they were doing like the home drama thing, it was really boring because how many different ways can you listen to a guy just say, I really like my wife and I really love my kids? <laughs> it, which is, you know, that was Otis Redding. He was just married once. He had four kids and that's it. You know, and his widow is, I think it was, I think still around, I believe, in fact. Um, but, uh, you know, you can lament the fact that he's gone, but I prefer to think about it this way that the fact that he was there in the first place is just a gift to us all it's a miracle that we have this stuff we have this very tight compact discography of this guy who was just growing finding his feet carving out a path a unique path in a major artistic area and then changing and we'll never know what happened but what we have is more than enough i say this before and i'll say it again you could live in Otis Redding's music for a day, a week, a month, and that'd be a great place to live. You could just go put on his concert on a loop, the, the Whiskey A Go Go sessions, in my opinion. I love that stuff. It just makes me happy. It makes me want to go do things for people. It makes me feel like a better person. It makes me chipper. I recommend to everybody, please go listen to Otis. He is the one of the ultimate soul giants. He goes up there on Mount Rushmore, in my opinion, and I'm just so grateful that we were able to talk about him today. And I think, you know, I hope at least do justice to him. There we are. The Political Beats look at the music and career of one Otis Redding. And now the impossible part. State Representative Andrew Fink is our guest, the 58th District of Michigan, an actual politician on Political Beats this week as we talk Otis Redding. Two albums. Five songs from somewhere in the catalog. Andrew, you're first. 
All right. By I, the way, I just want to say I have, I have 20 songs. I have a 20-song list, so I have no idea how I'm editing this down. I stopped at like 17, but you get everybody gets the point from that. I mean, it's it's not uh, it, you. It, these songs are short. You can listen to more than the 15 that we mentioned. But uh, for me, actually, the albums it's not that hard. If I was going to tell somebody go get a taste, I would say Soul Album and Immortal. Those are the two that 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 for me uh, give you kind of the most diversity, but still get the point of what makes Otis so great. I, I kind of would like to have a little more early stuff, but since those first couple of records don't really come together as records the same way, uh, that's where I would go, Soul Album and Immortal. And for five songs, I'm going to go with kind of a hybrid of a, of, a, of a couple of different theories here on what you should get a taste of. Uh, I'm going to say Direct Me. No, you know what? I'm not. Take that off. Forget <laughs> oh. it. We already talked about it. You, one you, of you can guys hear can a lot of, lot of yeah. agonisties from all of us. All right. I'm instead going to say for the same reason, that whole stripped down thing we talked about when we discussed it, there's a, a, a version of You Left the Water Running, which other people had bigger hits with. I don't think this one got released even as a B-side. I think you just got to find it on like some extra album material. I think maybe a version of the Dictionary of Soul, you can get it. But it's it's got the acoustic guitar and that stripped down thing. It's really groovy. I, I very much uh, recommend that version of that song. So You Left the Water Running. I'll do the cover of Satisfaction, um, and you might as well say that would be the live version from Monterey. It's great. I'll say Dreams to Remember and Nobody's Fault But Mine from Immortal. Uh, if you're trying to understand what I think is so great about those uh, that record, those are, are the two kind of different things happening there that make it so terrific. Um, you know, and I was going to say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change, change this last one up. I'll say Wonderful World from uh, Otis Blue. Again, it's a great exploration of this incredible artist sam cook through the work of otis redding which is very different but always you know not only respectful but reverent of the greatness of sam cook and so he does it and he and he embraces that song but he does it in his own way and it's just great so for the two albums i think i think otis blue and that one was pretty pretty clear for my list and i went back and forth and switched a few actually have a thing crossed out as andrew does on his list to cross for me in the end i did go with immortal uh, one of the releases after his death. So Otis Blue and Immortal are the two albums I'd, I'd recommend. And then for the five songs, I, I cut through the problem of of, uh, of of spending too much time on it by being really, I went with my gut and then tried not to double uh, or uh, second guess myself on, on these on these tracks. So my very quick and dirty list, you can essentially put them on shuffle and you'll find the first five songs are just as good. I Can't Turn You Loose is uh, the first track I'd recommend. Uh, two from Otis Blue, uh, I think Old Man Trouble is very different, and very great. One of my favorite, favorite tracks. Love that horn. Love the horns. Uh, Down the Valley also from Otis Blue is on my list of five. And then we go to the Duets album. I think uh, the, the, the cover of Eddie Floyd's Knock on Wood, Eddie and, and Steve, Cropper, uh, Steve Cropper's Knock on Wood, that deserves a place on the list. And for my last track, off the board for a song that we didn't talk about at all during the show, Champagne and Wine. The piano on that is just immaculate. Duck Dunn has a tremendous bass line. It is so laid back. It is so in the pocket. It is so perfect in its delivery. It's not on a solo album that could have been there, right? That's the kind of track it is. So go uh, check out Champagne and Wine. I think Those that's an Isaac five. Hayes piano track, by the way. That's just him in his early days, just you know, finding his feet, and it's beautiful work. Outstanding. Jeff, over to you. 
Boy, and I have to say, I was I was brought over by our guest this time because if you had asked me before we taped the show, I would have said the answers were going to be Otis Blue, the big breakthrough, and the Soul Album, which I love to death. But now, now I'm I love the Soul Album so much, so I'm not trying to denigrate it in any way. But I think I'm going to go with Otis Blue as it's the quintessential. It's the first Soul Album. You got to own this for God's sake. And I'm going to go with the Immortal. I agree with Andrew. That's just you know, it's uh, shocking to me that the stuff was kept in the can as long as it was, and I still weep for the album that Otis might have assembled himself. But that's just a fantastic record. As for my five songs, well, please kill me, but if I must, I guess from his earliest part of his career, I'm going to go with "That's How Strong My Love Is." It's just the force of a bull charging at you with all that power and that emotion. Then I'm going to go with his uh, the the big iconic one. You got to mention, I can't turn you loose. B-side. He had so much good material, he wasn't even putting it on the album because it wasn't themed right. But gosh, who doesn't love I Can't Turn You Loose? And of course, who doesn't also think of Jake and Elwood? And, you know, I, I still remember my memories of watching that for the first time only a couple That's of years right. ago, the Blues Brothers. I tweeted, I live tweeted, you'll find hilarious tweets where me saying things like, what? What's Carrie Fisher doing in this yes. film? I what no exactly idea. is the plot here? Yeah, yeah exactly. Like it's kind of funny. You can go back and find the thread. My third choice is going to be from the solo album. It's Cigarettes and Coffee. I think it's simply one of the most transcendent like, Stax Volt songs ever recorded in their entire the, the, the label's career. And I think you can put an argument that it's, it gets up. If, if you extend the Mount Rushmore of soul music to like 10 songs, it makes the 10. Hard to Handle was my fourth because, my gosh, you know, Mama, I'm sure hard to handle now. Yes, I am. I still can't believe that that was where he was going when he was cut down. And I guess my last one will be from Love Man. I love I'm a Changed Man. It's another one of those, like, what could have been? Where is he going? That was a strange song and a great groove. And then because, of course, I'm the host and I invoke host privilege, I'm going to drop another little bomb on you and say we did this entire episode and we didn't mention the fact that, by the way, while Otis Redding was making all this fantastic music, he also made the greatest Christmas song of all time, in my opinion. At least one of them. I know nominally it's November right now. We're not supposed to talk about the holidays until after Thanksgiving. But I hope you guys will forgive me for mer- mentioning Merry Christmas, Baby. Which I-, I had a friend of mine who pointed this out. He said like the difference between Merry Christmas, Baby and a lot of the other holiday favorites that we know is that it- it's such a warm and happy song. It's Otis Redding in full. You know, it's not like one of these songs of longing or sadness. My baby's been gone. It's just a, sa- it's a song of happiness and reconciliation. It's like wearing a warm blanket, and sitting around the fire with a mug of cocoa. It's Merry Christmas, Baby. Isn't it great to be home? Life is good. We're going to be great together. And that boy, if that isn't Otis Redding's personality in a nutshell and what makes him so gripping and compelling as a singer and as a personality and as an artist, I don't know what is. Uh, again, uh, just I just hope we were able to sell this guy to you because I, I think it's a travesty that he isn't more discussed these days. Merry Christmas, girl. Merry, merry, merry Christmas, baby.
political beats look at the music and career of Otis Redding. Our thanks to our guest on today's program, state representative for the 58th District of Michigan, as we speak, a candidate for the 35th District remap, you know. Uh, state representative Andrew Fink, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And while we're on the topic, get the Booker T. Christmas record going, too, once mm-hmm. Thanksgiving hits. Yes. Uh, Jeff, we are getting close to the end of the year and have a few more things in store before the calendar turns to 2023. Indeed we do. We'll see what, what comes up. It should be a lot of fun. At Esoteric CD for him on Twitter. My name is Scott Bertram. At Scott Bertram on Twitter. Reminder, patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Support us. Help the show. Entry-level support, mid-level, and then our upper-level best friends. Early access, higher audio quality, monthly exclusive content stuff, remastered episodes, playlists, and more at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. And now the part of the episode where we thank our individual Patreon supporters for all of their help through the years. Yes, years, plural at this point. Thank you, Sean Bible. Thank you, Stephen Carl, Mike Morrison, Andrew Manzo, John Presnall, David Propson, Sean Hackbarth, former guest, Barton Vaughn, Miles Kelly, and Perry Young. Thank all of you for helping us over at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Also, subscribe to our feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right at nationalreview.com. Click the podcast link to find it there. Find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the conversation at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. <laughs>